everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Normally at this point I'd offer a quote, but Jesus, the amount of news today is ridiculous. We do not have the time. You're quoting yourself then. <laughs> we gotta go, Tom. This is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seacord. Go to Seacord.org to get the best in comic books and pop cultures, news, reviews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And do not forget, Seacord is on Patreon. <gasps> well done. Now, usually, uh, me and Sean, we do some news, and then we mostly talk about comics. We review whatever issues or collections we've read. But uh, this is the post-San Diego Comic-Con, SDCC era. And unlike the last two years... There actually have been comic-related news in Comic-Con, which is yeah. a shock. Like, I was in awe whenever somebody said, oh, there's a new comic book project, and I'm announced at San Diego? Are you sure? Yeah. I looked, back at previous, I looked back at previous episodes of the Smorgasbord that we did when SCCC was coming out. We did not have that much trouble compressing everything into like relatable news bites here there is just a lot to talk about so as a result of that we're going to forego our usual reviews and have this be an all news episode yeah uh, and we have to start not san diego adjacent it just happened during the same time and it's a piece of news uh florence flo steinberg passed away uh two days ago as of the recording she was Famously, a secretary and an assistant at Marvel Comics during the heydays. She was also a publisher of independent comics during the 70s, including uh, Big Apple Comics with an X in uh, 75. So, uh, Flo Steinberg was famously uh, an a original member of the Marvel bullpen. Uh, in, on Twitter, Tom Brevert referred to her as the First Lady of Marvel, which isn't much of an exaggeration. She was the office manager at the very early days of Marvel Comics. Um, she answered fan mail, and as you mentioned, after leaving uh, Marvel in 1968, she went on to form Big Apple Comics. Uh, just one of the most influential and important women in the in mainstream main comics. In yeah. mainstream comics, and she will be missed. Yeah, she was born in 1939, and it's Every episode now, right? It's a reminder that it's, uh, all yeah, those legends that we grow up with, well, they grow older every day. Damn. It's the In Memoriam Corner. We may have to pick a theme song for this, Tom. I, I would rather not. Moving uh, on to the Eisners. Oh, yeah, yeah. The what now? The Eisners. They happen what? too. What's the Eisners? The Eisners are basically the Oscars. They're awards that nobody really cares about unless you're using it to defend that a book is actually good when most of the time... No, 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 no. Goes... Sean, Sean, you're, you're confused. You're talking about the Sagas. The uh... Sagas Award for books, for, for books called Saga. What's... Who's this Eisner you're talking of? I'm, is he related to Brian K. Vaughn? Like, is he his shoeshine boy or something? You know what? I'm not even mad because I'll tell you what, I'm still loving Saga, but you're not totally off base. Four awards this year. Best writer, best artist, best cover artist, best ongoing series. Yeah. In what, sixth year? Is it the sixth year of Saga? I think so. I think so, yeah. That's insane and not in a, whoa, that's insane. Like, no, 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 that's literally insane. Somebody has forgotten to take their pills. We like Saga, and I, 
we like Brian K. Vaughn, we love Fiona Staples, but let somebody else compete, maybe? Um, maybe do maybe do a special category for non-saga related series? <laughs> like that's the only way someone else can win? Well, let me ask you this. Saga won four awards, yes, but one of the things that we all always have to keep in context, first of all, I think like it has become kind of a cliche to bag on Saga a little bit because it is so popular, because, you know, people do continue to enjoy it and it has remained stable throughout. But the question yeah, sure. is, do they deserve these awards? I would argue yes, but I think the, the other question in addition to that is, okay, who were Saga up against in these other series? Right? Like, what were the other nominations that Saga was... For example, I'm looking at Best Continuing Series, right? So you had The Mighty Thor. The Mighty Thor is good. I wouldn't put it above Saga. It was up against... In Best Continuing Series, it was up against Kill or Be Killed, which you know how I feel about that book. Not that interesting. I really like Kill or Be Killed. I just finished the first arc, and I thought it was great. Uh, Astro City and Paper Girls, because why not... Well, yeah, but Astro City, for example, is another book where I wouldn't even see, like, the the catch here. And far be it for me to, you know, nitpick at Eisner's criteria, but they're calling it Best Continuing Series. Astro City has not been monthly lately. There have been delays. The book has disappeared for months. No, it's not not that delayed. I think it's coming out every two months or so. It. It's not. Yeah. It's not Ultimates Two. It's not From Hell. It's not. No. It's not that bad, but it does take more than a year for Kurt Busiek to finish one storyline, well, and I feel Busiek like something has episode. to be. Yeah, I feel like something has to be said for consistency over a period of time. Which, well, in, in, in that case, I would say Giant Days should have been nominated and should have. Well, won. you think Giant Days should be nominated for everything. And I'm well, not necessarily well, disagreeing yeah, but, with that, but... Uh, because, okay, here's the thing. It's a good series, but the Bloom is, you know, it's not completely off the road, but it's a bit... It won't shock you, I think, anymore, Saga. Uh, I have to it, disagree. It, 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 not, not in terms of plot mechanics, stuff, because Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples are still really good at that, you know, last page reveal or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it won't shock you in terms of this is what Saga does. You know, at this point, we know what Saga is, and Saga won enough awards. And the question then becomes, you know, what's the point of the Eisners? Because if it's about excellence in terms of, you know, what's the best continuing series, I don't think Saga is right now. And if it is about recognition, well, Saga and the people who make Saga at this point certainly don't need any more recognition. I'm pretty sure Brian K. Vaughn now uses his... Uh, what's the shape of the Eisner Awards? It's like a globe or something? Something like that, yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure he's using them to hold off a wobbly table or something. The question is one of those is... I, because there are people who, whose criticism of this is easy. It's Saga, they never liked Saga, or they think it became boring and wrote, and that's fine, that's their opinion, they're wrong, but that's fine. And they can just say, well, it shouldn't have won. We're in a bit of a bind of, yes, it's a good series, but I still think it shouldn't have won again and again. I wouldn't go again. that far. See, I wouldn't go that far because my the thing that I have to ask is, why do you think the Eisner Committee gave that award to Saga 
over and over. Like, why do they keep choosing Saga? Is it because there is just some kind of tradition of, well, we don't really feel like getting into all these new series. Saga has proven itself. Let's just go with that. Is it the default choice? Or is it that the series legitimately is that good? And you and I have been reading Saga since issue one. We've known Brian K. Vaughn since even before that, right? We read Why the Last Man. We've read Ex Machina. We've read Mystique. We know what he can do. So for us, it doesn't come as that much of a revelation. I still enjoy it month in and month out. But the question is, is there an added value to Saga that is essentially making the case for getting these awards? And I think it, there may be. I think that one of the things Saga does that puts it above something like, say, the Mighty Thor is that it is accessible. You and I... M- there might come a point where we are burnt out on Saga, even if it does maintain consistency, but you could always point that book to a new reader and give them the first trade or the first deluxe edition or whatever, and well, they will get into it. There is, It is evergreen. And well, because Chew, it's evergreen... Chu you know, just finished last year, and technically it could have been nominated, and Chu, when it closed, like the last arc, the last issue of the last arc was to me... A mind-blowing work of, whoa, I did not see that coming. I did not see that move. I did not see that direction. Okay. So that, but... to me, is an example of a series that was in its, again, sixth year and still did something interesting. Chu was very esoteric, though. Like, again, I, the, the comparison that I always make with the Oscars and the Eisners you know, it's not coincidental. You never really look to the Oscars for an indication of movies that you would actually enjoy, right? It's always some kind of perception of this movie is capital A, art. And that's why they will tend to overlook genre films. They'll, they don't particularly care what people respond to. It's just what they think is good and whatever meets that criteria. And I do think that the Eisners are not necessarily the place where you go to see people win awards on merit as opposed to some larger perception. Like, look at the other nominations, right? Who got Best Limited Series? It was Tom King and Gabriel Walta for Vision, of course, right? Best uh, New Graphic Album was Wonder Woman, The True Amazon by Jill Thompson, which I agree is phenomenal, but at the same time, it's kind of the obvious choice, right? Well, what was it up against? Let's see. Um, I'm not sure it's the obvious choice. Uh, the Art of Charlie Chan Hook Chi by Sonny Liu, which won three other awards, could have been a could have been a winner. And the new Daniel Klaus is always like a strong nominee. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's the obvious choice. And is is it the only? No, it's not the only DC winner because they have the short story from Batman, which also yeah. won. But it's. At this point, it's actually kind of rare for a DC or a Marvel book to win something. Well, I would argue that part of that is... Image and Dark Horse seems to be dominating, like, most of the time, in terms of nominations, at least. You know, naturally, Reina Telgemeier got something. Naturally, you know, uh, Best Digital Comic went to Ben Dead, of course. Uh, The Best Humor Publication. Who are you going to pick for Best Humor Publication besides Chip Zdarsky and Ryan North? You know? Like, it, it, on some level, there was nothing there that made me go like, oh, maybe I should check this book out because I haven't heard of it, but it won an Eisner. You know, it, it does sort of default to safe choices, but at the same time, I don't think that those choices being safe 
detracts from how good they are. It's it's like it's safe if you're us, if you're the guy who reads mainstream and alternative comics for several years, but for you know, for people who are brand new into comics, these are like unknown choices, right? I don't know. That's an interesting it, question. Because if you're pretty new into comics, what, what vision? What's this vision? A no, vision was a vision is in the movies, Tom. Well, Pe- yeah, people but, know who Vision is. But now. this version of the character, the, this idea, conception of it, is a Philip K. Dick esque uh, black co- science fiction comedy. Yeah, but you wouldn't know that until you picked up the first issue. Yeah, that's or the I'm first saying. trade. You know, like it's, if you if you hear that like Vision won Best Limited Series, and that compels you to go pick up a Vision book, like Tom King's Vision, you, you will. I think that what they're betting on is that you would get into it even if it did not correspond one-to-one with the vision for the movies. Uh, overall, my thing is I would like the Eisners to be braver, but that's because as far as I'm concerned, what they're picking is what I'm already reading. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly. maybe it's that's on me. Uh, I would say Todd Klein winning Best Letter feels like inertia. Yeah. Clean Room, Dark Knight, and Lucifer. That's his three big projects over last year. None of them are that amazingly lettered. Yeah. It's pretty much... How many awards does he have, speaking of uh, the saga awards? <laughs> like many. 15 or something? He won about six years in a row at a certain point, which is yeah. bizarre. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I... The smaller categories do allow a bit more flow, I'd say, and some surprises. Like, the best book about comics is Crazy, George Harriman, A Life in Black and White by Michael Tisrand, which I want to read, because uh, Crazy Cat is one of those comics that I could never get into personally, one of those classic series, but it is, like, a fascinating thing, and the life story of this guy sounds fascinating. Mm. Or Superwoman, uh, Gender, Power, and Representation, from uh, Caroline Kaka. That sounded pretty interesting. So that's Uh, another one to put on the shelf. I actually, this doesn't happen to me often, but uh, one of the Eisner winners was someone that I had actually read. Uh, Best webcomic went to Anne Zabla's, uh, let me rephrase that. Best webcomic went to Anne Zabla's Bird Boy. I recently read the first uh, two books. It's printed via Dark Horse, I believe, speaking of them. Yeah, now see, that's, that's another questionable choice, I think, because not that it's not good. Bird Boy is actually, it's drawn very well. It's got a very interesting thing, but we're halfway into book three and it is very much at the beginning of the story. It's one of those very decompressed, very long stories, the way that it's shaping out. And I, see, that's the sort of thing where I always wonder if maybe for the purpose of evaluating a webcomic, you do need something that is complete. Or at least halfway done, because then you can fairly evaluate it. I don't know. It's it's an interesting question, and I think not something that the Eisners are particularly equipped to answer. So, you know, I'll ask you a question now, Sean, a surprise question. Mm. If you could add a category to the Eisners, what would it be? Best kiss. Best what? Best kiss. <laughs> okay. It works for the MTV Movie Awards. Well, obviously, we all must want to be in the MTV. I want my MTV. <laughs> I mean, you know that that's what like the big two would be like. Please let us be cool like MTV. Oh, yeah. I'm actually interested in best editor. Who would that be, though? Be- Who would you give yeah, it to? Exactly. Uh, like over the last 
several years. Like Sa- Sana Manat could have won a best editor. Uh, Heather Antos, who does some of the more uh, down the line Marvel books, like she's responsible to Gwenpool. Yeah, and she, I, I would give that to her. Mm. Just, but then, just for Twitter <laughs> presence. Just her, you know, like who else? Who else is there? It, oh, best Twitter, like best comics Twitter. No, wait, that's not fair. Chip Zdarsky would win. Like, he would win, game. and then yeah. he would win. Like it would be the Zdarskys. Yeah, it'll just end up being like you know the Zdarsky Award for best Twitter, and then well, yeah. who else is it going to be? Oh, well, see, the Eisner doesn't do this, but I would like some worse categories. But we have the Smorgies for that. We don't yeah, need the Eisners. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, so that was the Eisners. Shall we yeah. talk about comics news? Let's move on to the biggest convention of the year, or one of the biggest, I suppose. San Diego Comic-Con happened. Yeah. And for once, it was not a vacuous waste of time and a migraine exercise in bullshit propaganda. Well, it was also that. It was that too, but we got some interesting little tidbits out of it. And I basically, in order for us to cope with a massive amount of information, I sort of broke it down into categories. Okay. So let's so take start it from with the top. DC or Marvel? Let's start with Marvel movies and, D- and TV. Okay. Overall. So first and foremost, we started getting these big pushes for Thor Ragnarok, Defenders, Infinity War. Did you see any of these trailers? Uh, I didn't see the Infinity War trailer because that was a leak and I do not watch leaks. I only watch official things because I am a law-abiding citizen. Starring okay. Jared Butler, 2014. <laughs> that, was a ter- that was a terrible movie. Sorry. Well, it was a Jared Butler movie, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> odds, odds were nothing against the man personally, but he doesn't May have the May the best. odds be ever in your favor unless you're Jared <laughs> Butler. So, okay. Um, I... Did take a look at the leak, just out of curiosity. Um, It did confirm something that I was hoping would be the case, which is that, you know, the, the biggest fear about this movie, I think, is that when you are incorporating such an enormous cast and you're expected to choreograph what they're all doing simultaneously... It could end up being completely chaotic, right? Like you don't know where to look on the screen and your brain gets fried. It could end up being too much. Based on the short clip that I saw, I think in general, it's okay. Like I didn't have any trouble, even though it was filmed at a really weird angle. I didn't really have any problems tracking uh, who was doing what at any given time. You know, what these characters were doing. You have all these interactions with all these familiar characters. I think... As long as they manage to maintain that, this could work. You know, it could lead us to a sensible finale to this whole Marvel Cinematic Universe thing. Mm. I am now very much tempted to ask Marvel to test the audience love by releasing the movie from a handheld camera. Like, they screened <laughs> the movie in a normal uh, Disney cinema and somebody in the audience is sitting with a handheld and taking a picture at a shitty angle, and then they release that version. And they, it's going to happen anyway, they, Tom. And no, and then they announce, no, this is the official version. You can only watch it like this, and <laughs> we'll see how many millions of people are saying, "Well, okay, I'll still watch it anyway. I'll uh, still go to the cinema, pay my eleven bucks, buy my giant <laughs> popcorn, and sit with my neck craned on the side, trying to understand what's happening." 
I think you might be giving their fans too much credit, bearing in mind that, like, this film is being marketed as the big climax to everything they've been doing, like 20 movies or whatever. There is a certain contingent of people who are hoping that it fails. Because that would be, like, the nut punch that would take Marvel Studios down a peg. Uh, Possibly. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, The Defenders trailer looks pretty good. It it looks regular at this point for a Netflix show. Again, you know, Holloway's our worst fear. (laughs) It was a good uh, bit of having all four of them fight, though. Like, you know, again, it's always... it, It has to be such a challenge to maintain that balance between these characters who are protagonists of their own stories. And when you think about it, like, this is the sort of thing that comic book events do almost, like, two, three times a year now. That they manage to coordinate all of these things simultaneously. Yes, badly. Badly. Well, badly has more to do with the talent that they have working on it than, like, the principle of the thing. There used to be good crossovers. Um, In film, it'll be really intriguing to see how that plays out. Uh, new trailer for Thor Ragnarok. Still looks like fun. Yeah. Taika it looks Raimi, like he's good. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a very fun, lighthearted film. And you know what? There is... I am seeing this trend now, right? Like, we have, we've had Guardians of the Galaxy 2, we've had Spider-Man Homecoming, and now we have Thor Ragnarok, which is just like these this block of three films that are meant to be lighthearted and fun and entertaining. And I deeply appreciate that. Because I don't want to go back to, like, the grim, dark 90s. I don't want that. That's well, why I don't watch... Not, none of the Marvel movies were, you know, ever dark and edgy. Thank God. I'm, I'm yeah, grateful Kate, for that because... That Kate Blanchett performance. They better not shorthand her as the villain. Like, if there's Hell, no. ever... If there's ever a role that should make the movie, like, a villain role in a Marvel movie, which everybody agrees that's most of their time their weak point... This should be it. Like, this should be the one villain everybody's talking about when they leave the movie. Yeah, I think so, too. Because... I hope so. I'm, well, the, the thing is, I have to imagine that they cast her specifically because they were looking for someone who could act on the level of kind of like what Anthony Hopkins brings to Odin. That sense of like... You Anthony know, bro- Hopkins went to sleep in the middle of the first movie. Yeah, and, but and while he was... And then the script was... was like, oh, no, no, it's the Odin sleep. And then, no, 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 Anthony Hopkins movie. Don't lie to me. Anthony Hopkins was just tired and he went, went to nap. And you it... were like, oh, yeah, it's the no, Odin no, 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 sleep. No, no. Hang That's on. what happened. First of all, the Odin sleep is a thing. You know that. That's not yeah. something they made up. Second of all, in the part where, like, in the first half of the film where Odin is actually there, he was awesome. You know, the whole uh, thing where, where he, like, he banishes Thor and he tells Loki about, like, the whole uh, thing with the temple. I thought he was just, like, letting the weight of being Anthony Hopkins carry it all. He, ne- he never put any effort as far as I'm concerned. He was just like, I'm Anthony Hopkins. I have gravitas automatically. I don't have He does. Him. I mean, even if it's automatic, he does have it. So I think that they are aware of that. And certainly, like, the, the bits of Vela that I've seen from the trailer do seem to suggest that they're aiming for a more memorable paradigm this time. Which I think is... I agree with you. Like, it's a good idea. So far, they have managed to waste a lot of very talented actors on roles that should have been smash hits and weren't. Like, you know, uh, the most obvious example being Ego, right? Yeah. Hugo Weaving as the Red Skull, like, nothing. 
Nothing. No, I, I would disagree with that. I thought he did pretty well, but I think part yeah, of the problem is... Yeah, but he did pretty well with what was given to him, and what was given to him was nothing. You know, just the stand Red Skull. there and speechify in a boring yeah. manner. But what else does the Red Skull do? That's, I mean, that's who he is, right? You know, they lucked out with Loki. They didn't do so well with... Afterwards, you had, like, care- part of the problem also is, like, they were reaching for the B-level villains. They had Ivan Vanko, so Mickey Rourke. It's like, okay, well, what are you going to do? It's Ivan Vanko. There's no... Everybody there's... loves Whiplash. The do they? Do they? 20 f- the 25th most memorable Iron Man villain. <laughs> yeah, so I get it. I understand the difficulty with that. I'm hoping that Hela... Well, Hela and also... I mean, the Vulture was fantastic. The Vulture, oh, yeah, I think, yeah. maybe broke the, vul- the mold. The Vulture was great. So I think if they can stick with that going forward, they'll be okay. Speaking of good casting, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh... News for the next Ant-Man film, which is Michelle Pfeiffer and Lawrence Fishburne have been cast as Janet Van Dyne and Bill Foster, respectively. Which... See, if it wasn't respectively, I would have been so happy. <laughs> Bill Foster as Janet Van Dyne. Uh, it could happen. You know, body switching is not that uncommon a thing, but excellent casting on both counts. Bill um, Foster is the one who gained Black Goliath, right? Yeah. Who Mark Miller had buried in chains. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Two Marvel Comics events called Civil War start with the death of a black Marvel character. I'm just saying. Oh, we know. I mean, the, you know, that's like the, the scene from Game of Thrones with the, with the horse girl. It is known. It is known. I'm, I'm thinking in the terms of Fishburne as Bill Foster, it's going to be one of those... Not stunt casting as much as... You know, they'll publish him, but then in the movie proper, he'll be in for like seven minutes. Glenn Close in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie appeared on the screen right. saying, Hello, I'm Glenn Close, leader of the Nova Corps. Goodbye. I think that's legit because, I mean, overall, Bill Foster, I, I don't remember Goliath being a major part of Ant-Man, of Scott Lang's story specifically. No, but they, they changed have... the story so much, it doesn't really matter. But is he that directly related to Ant-Man? I don't know a lot about his character, is the thing. I have not read enough 1970s Avengers comics to know about Yeah. So, you know, it, it depends on, on what what they intend to use him for. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, fantastic actress. I'm not concerned about that at all. Admittedly, like, some tiny part of me was hoping they would have cast Catherine Zeta-Jones despite all the awkwardness that would have ensued because I do think she would have had, like, an interesting dynamic with... Um, I'm blanking out on his name. Michael Douglas? Michael Douglas, yeah. That would have um, been... The age difference is a bit too severe. Not, no, it's not that. She's his ex-wife. Well, yeah, but the age... I'm saying the age of... What works in real life is awkward in movies. Especially well, hang movies on. about oh, treating hang people. On. Since we are talking about Marvel movies, though, hasn't she been stuck in some sub-dimension for something? They could just be like, oh, she hasn't aged. Yeah, yeah, that's more. <laughs> I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer, I think she is closer to Michael Douglas's age, but she doesn't look it. They could have her playing like 20 years younger without a problem. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the first Ant-Man movie. I thought it was a good beginning, a decent end, and a very sagging middle. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just standing in a mansion talking about doing the robbery, and I'm just robbed the place, damn it. Okay. Uh, but, you know, that's another problem that a lot of Marvel movies have. The, the middle third o- 
often feels to me very like passing the time to the climax. I think because a lot of them are introducing characters and for some reason, I don't know if it's a right call or the wrong call, but they do feel the need to do the training sequence. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the problem is, it's kind of an interesting paradox when you think about it. On the one hand, if you don't have a training sequence for a character that you have never seen before, you could accuse them of being Mary Sue's because they just instantly pick up the skills. The, uh, but the flip side of that is when you're introducing a dozen characters and every single one of them has a training montage, it's like, okay, there are only so many ways that you can mess with that particular sequence to make it fresh before you run out of possibilities. It's not overall Ant-Man and the Wasp. It's not, it's not a movie I'm expecting for, but, you know, it could be fun. Could yeah. be an improvement. I think we are at that point where these movies really just need to entertain. They need to be engaging they need to be fun they need to have some humor they need to have good action sequences if there's a compelling villain that's a bonus but we are i think at a point where everything is building up towards infinity war anyway so we you know as long as they don't rock the boat and put out another age of ultron which is just like a dip in quality that you don't want to see again then i think it's okay um captain marvel is gonna take place in the 90s Yes. That's How weird. weird. Uh, the <laughs> guy whose handle on Twitter is Film Critic Hulk. You, are you familiar with that guy? He's I a very, think so. He's a very famous film critic, and he still goes under the name Film Critic Hulk. And I'm, you have more readers than Polina Kilad in her high time. You can go by your normal name, whatever. He has this thing, which I found an interesting take on it, that because this is the first female-led Marvel movie... They're gonna do the the man is trying to put her down, and they put it in the '90s. Like a lot of historical movie, like a lot of movies about racism, always use historical setting to like, oh, we used to be bad, but we got over it. They don't want to put it mm-hmm. today because that's that would feel too raw, and you know the movie hasn't come out yet, so we don't know. But that's that's a bad take. Like just putting it back 20 years ago so you can do, oh, we used to think women couldn't serve, but now we're more enlightened or whatever. We're not, as a species. I I actually highly doubt that that's the case. I think it's another reason altogether. The thing about Captain Marvel as a film is that it is very weirdly positioned in the schedule, right? Because what's supposed to happen is that Infinity War Part 1 comes out, then Captain Marvel, then Infinity War Part 2. So... If you are going to... And my guess would be that she shows up in Infinity War first. So it seems to me that what they're trying to do is foreground her presence in the Marvel Universe. Like, show her in... in, It would have sort of been like if the Avengers had come out before the first Captain America movie. Where you would have had to sort of flash back to to the origin story... But have the present-day character be there first. Like, have that be the first exposure for the character. It's weird. I don't know why they scheduled it that way, because it it wasn't supposed to be that way originally. When Phase 3 was first revealed, and Kevin Feige had that PowerPoint presentation and all that, Captain Marvel was supposed to come out before um, Part 1 of Infinity War. They moved it down the slate after they got the rights to Spider-Man. Yeah, a whole bunch of things happened. Like, they got the rights yeah. to Spider-Man. Uh, they went with, they announced a second Ant-Man movie. They dropped the Inhumans. So there were a whole lot of shifts and changes in the schedule. But what happened as a result of that is that 
she like her introduction is being pushed down in between the climax of the entire series right I which do, is kind st- of weird i'm still afraid you know you're talking plot mechanics i'm talking i think that's why the, the, yeah the no but plot mechanics are always an excuse for re- real world concerns what what i'm afraid of this is going to be the self-congratulatory oh we have a female movie star we have a female-led superhero movie just in our 20th movie by that time something like that I don't care about that. Well, I, I'll be, I, I'll be I, honest. I, I do to a degree. I, I, the it, reason it doesn't matter to me is because, first of all, the, they're doing it. Like, that's first and foremost, right? Captain Marvel is going to be a thing. The other problem is, like, yeah, okay, acknowledging that they have had that issue up until now, it's absolutely true. That's not something that you can dispute. There hasn't been a lead female in uh, a Marvel film up until now. That's fact. But... You can either continue to, like, hold it against them, or you can say, like, okay, that sucks. It should have been fixed ages ago. There should have been a Black Widow film. We should have had She-Hulk running around. Uh, I don't know. There's a dozen different variations of things that they could have done to fix this. Well, the only and- other movie with a female lead is the Ant-Man and the Wasp, and she's like she's second build. It's not Wasp. Yeah. It's and not a ha- and and there hasn't been any announcements of further female led movies. So mock for all the talk about oh we're changing course. There's still No, I don't think so. that this is No, no, no. I don't think this is changing course at all. I think this is more a situation where again, like it's kind of a chicken and the egg question and I don't think that there's like a provable answer. It's the question of at what point did Marvel realize that they probably should have at least one movie with a female lead. It, the Netflix didn't have this problem, right? They started with Daredevil and then immediately went to Jessica Jones. So that was taken care of almost immediately. In the films, you had Black Widow and you had Gamora, but these were not characters who would be positioned as solo protagonists. I think the, the story with uh, Black Widow is that Johansson didn't want to do it. Although she, of course, did, she ended up de- doing uh, Lucy. Lucy. So clearly, you know, like Gerard Butler, there's an issue of judgment here that might need to be taken care of. But anyway, well, Lucy fact- made a lot of money, so the judgment of cash of Mamnon uh, is, I guess, I guess, you know. So I like I understand that. I, practically speaking, it's too late, right? By the time you get to the issue of, I don't, I mean, they haven't announced that anything is happening after Infinity War, to the best of my knowledge. That's supposed to be, like, the end. And to be completely honest with you, I probably would consider that a jumping-off point. You know, have the big climax, have everybody show up, wrap up all the storylines, and just get it done with. Yeah, um, that money-making machine is going nowhere till it loses Probably. Money. I mean, listen, I have no doubt that they're going to come up with some kind of crazy shit to keep it going. But by that point, it's like, it, much like the comics themselves, it's amazing what at what points they do follow the comics and at what points they don't. Much like the comics themselves, these mega crossover events can serve as points where you have a conclusion, you can just step off. Now, Sean, don't you want to see the West Coast Avengers movie? I don't. I do not. Don't you want to see the new war? <laughs> oh, wait, no. New, York's, new war is going to be a TV show, right? Now, that I might take a look at. 
Mm. You know, the, they're doing this uh, gifted I, TV show too. I told you, know, you what maybe. I really want, right? What I want for the next Marvel phase or whatever, I want them to tweak the Universal Studio nose with a Legion of Monsters uh, movie. To do like a <laughs> uh-huh, and the Dark Universe. Monsters want, uh, Unleashed. Yeah, yeah. And, and I want, uh, what's her name from Next Wave? Elsa Bloodstone as a lead. And she's, you know, she she's forced to work with all those monsters to save the world, even though she was trained to hunt them. And as a bonus point, you can use it to reintroduce Blade into the Marvel Universe. Now that would be interesting. Yeah. Bringing Blade back into the fold. That would be... Because I think the rights must have left because nobody's done anything with Blade for 10 years now since the TV show. On the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, they canceled the Blade series where he was supposed to be with his daughter, the the comic book. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I think it was Tim Seeley who was supposed to be working on that. They canceled it and and Blade has not been around. So Well, Marvel canceling a series for no reason. It's not used like But it's not oh, for no No, like, no, it's what? not for no reason. Hang on. But it, this might like Blade might fall under the same problem as Fantastic Four. Well, no, because they still have a uh what what all oh, the X-Men series and such. Eh, not really. The X-Men participation has dropped Pretty consistently since then. Not a whole lot of solo titles going uh, on. Okay, I think I think that's enough about Marvel. Should we move on to DC movies and stuff? One last item about Marvel. Uh, Iron okay. Fist is getting a new showrunner in Raven Metzen. Scott Buck, thank the Lord, has been kicked off. What and has she done, this Raven? I don't know, but it can't be any worse than Scott Buck because Iron Fist was garbage. They've confirmed that the Daughters of the Dragon are going to be a thing. Uh, Misty Knight is joining the cast. I'm down for it. I still can't stand Danny Rand, but, you know, maybe he will go back to his home planet. Raven Metzen announces new plans for the next uh, series of Iron Fist. Danny Rand is going to spend it in a coma. Yes! Yeah. Sure, why not? You know, like, when you have the Daughters of the Dragon, you really don't need Iron Fist. Just get Shang-Chi in there and you're all good. DC! DC. Uh, a new Justice League trailer, a long Justice League trailer, and it's pretty much what you expect. If you mm-hmm. liked the previous trailer, you'd enjoy this one. If you didn't, you wouldn't. Nothing new, I'd say. Well, I was curious about one thing, though, and I wanted to get your take on it. Do you think that this trailer was the product of Zack Snyder's shooting or Joss Whedon's shooting? It doesn't matter. Trailers are ma- are usually made by different, like, trailer-only editing companies. Were there so, any elements there that you could pick out as belonging to one or the other? No, no. Most of the, most of the scenes seem to be expansions of stuff that we already seen in the previous trailer, which was, if believed, all Snyder. Like, okay. including the jokes. So... Okay. Uh, I still think the Flash costume is terrible. Like the cyborg, <laughs> the cyborg look is not very good, but the Flash just looks horrible. Yeah. The TV show looks a thousand times better, and it's a TV show with a TV budget. Why? Streamline it. He doesn't need an armor. He's the Flash. I don't know why they went with such a bulky look. It's it's a like gym, you- it's it's those terrible. Uh, New 52 Jim Lee designs where everybody yeah. got armor and all the costumes became like realistic and detailed. Like, yes, of course, Superman, the man who could withstand the tactical nuke in his in his shorts, needs a bulky armor for whatever reason. We don't yeah, he, know why. Like, Jim Lee doesn't. Li- 
Jim Lee was attacked by spandex when he was a kid, and he hates it. <laughs> he hates it. It's really weird as a thing. I, I haven't been able to figure it out because every time, like, you know, Ezra Miller is not a bad actor, but every time I see him in that costume, I'm like, you look like a cosplayer and, like, not one of the good ones. Well, now he, you know? he might have an excuse to leave the costume. A lot of people might have an excuse to leave the costume because the Flash movie, the Flash solo movie, which will be made even though they've lost, what, three directors and two scriptwriters at this point? Mm-hmm. It's going to be called Flashpoint. Joy. That's so weird. And is it, though, Tom? Is it weird at this point? Hopefully, hopefully for them and for us, because I'm a movie critic, I'll probably have to watch it. Hopefully, it's one of those Age of Ultron, Civil War thing where you take the name and basically almost nothing else. That would from, be nice. From, from the event title. It's just called Flashpoint because, hey, it's, it's a story that's pretty popular. It's been in the TV. There's been an animated movie. People recognize the name, so we'll call it Flashpoint. If it is an actual, like the comic, excuse for a reboot within the movie continuity, that's terrible. Especially when you consider... That's the thing that ruined the X-Men movies. The the necessity to try to explain within the movie rat content. That's the thing that ruins superhero comics, and that's the thing they've decided to import into their movies. To be honest, and I know that you you wouldn't know this, but I'll, I'll drop this bomb on you. It's also the thing that kind of ruined the the currently running Flash TV show because Whatever. they did do they did do Flashpoint and they do have Barry Allen time traveling eight hundred times to learn the lesson that you shouldn't time travel and then do it again anyway. Somebody and it just, just gets, let the guy borrow a DVD of Back to the Future. It's Bill just. It no, Bill and Ted really, is pro time travel. Sorry. Yeah, Bill and Ted would be like, you know, it's cool, dude. But um, so the issue is that it gets overly complicated, and the it's sort of a twofold problem. The, this question of like, should you do Flashpoint? First of all, no, no. Flashpoint, the answer is no. No, <laughs> no, no. Hang it's on, a bad, no, because it's a bad story and it's a bad idea. No, Don't do Flashpoint. I disagree. I disagree in, in on the level of principle because at its core. What Flashpoint is, it was executed terribly in the comics. That's not a secret. But if you go for the idea of, you know, there's this time travel event and the universe is changed and now you have to explore this. It's like the Age of Apocalypse, right? A very, you know, the world is different. The characters are different. Let's explore them for a little bit and then put them back in the box and bring things back to normal. That's fine. That's an average episode of Star Trek, science fiction, use of time travel. It's all good. The problem, though is that in order for you to have a Flashpoint story that has any kind of emotional resonance for your character, for your audience, the audience has to actually know who these people are. Flashpoint is not something, you know, they did Flashpoint in the the CW series in Season 3. You had had enough time by that point to get to know who these characters are so that their altered versions resonate with you. In film, I don't know, like, when is The Flash supposed to come out relative to Justice League? Is it the next movie? I have no... No, I think Aquaman is next. So, Because they've actually started shooting Aquaman. Right, so... I imagine, like, if it's Justice League, Aquaman, Flash, something like that, that is not enough time for you to do a Flashpoint story where the audience is expected to be like, oh, he time-traveled and everything's different. But we didn't know how things were before. You know, there's there's a problem with that logic and it just, it doesn't work. 
Um, but like you said, maybe it's just in name only. Have you heard about the mustache controversy? <laughs> I have, but I want you to tell our listeners about the mustache so, controversy. So there have been reshoots on the Justice League movie. Uh, Joss Whedon came aboard after the terrible tragedy with Zack Snyder's family. And DC paid a lot of money for reshoots. And that's, as been said before, that's not rare. That's something that happens all the yeah. time in big budget movies. Uh, Rogue One had extensive reshoots. Han Solo is, is going to have them right now. Whatever. Good or ill. Now, uh, Henry Cavill, who plays Superman, was at the time busy doing the sixth Mission Impossible movie. Mm. And for making that movie, he grew up facial hair. A nice, thick mustache. And when he when they told him, you have to come back and do reshoots for Justice League, and, well, Superman doesn't have a mustache. So please shave that off. The people who produce uh, Mission Impossible 6 said, Nope, we do not allow you to remove your mustache. You must remain mustachioed, meaning real mustache. <laughs> and so in order to do the reshoots, a digital effects company will have to be hired specifically to remove <laughs> the mustache in the post-production, which is the stupidest, the single stupidest use of digital effects money I think in history. Oh my I, I, god! I remember when uh, post-editing FX became a big thing, and Waterworld came out, and according to the rumors, they digitally uh, lowered Kevin Costner hair to make people think he's not getting older and bolder as the day as they go on because he was only like forty something or whatever. Yeah. And and people commented, "Oh, that's stupid! Like that's the most stupid use of digital effects you can imagine." I'm pretty um, sure this one. Not, is. not anymore. Like. As as the popular meme says, you know, hold my beer. It's like oh, how long only does Superman it take? can't drink, I guess. He can he, he can murder millions of people, but he's not allowed to drink. <laughs> Here's what I'm wondering though. How long exactly did it take Henry Cavill to grow that mustache in the first place? Because you could just shave it off and grow a new one. I don't Is know. Is it he's that probably, like he's probably running between reshoots, like he's shooting for one movie and then another. Ay ay ay. Well, that's a terrible controversy, but uh, do we want to address the other big controversy regarding DC movies at SDCC? Which the, is? The question of Ben Affleck. No, Ben Affleck is playing Batman. He's not playing the question. Sean, you <laughs> Here's the thing. I don't know. That you have to consider that this rumor that keeps coming up has to be fueled by three things. First of all, schadenfreude. People really want to see this tank because they've been terrible so far. Second of all, Ben Affleck himself has not been super enthusiastic, and you can see it on his face. He's in these interviews looking like he would rather be on a burning space shuttle heading straight for the sun. You know, the whole Hello Darkness, My Old Friend meme that they labeled on him, it's not for nothing. He is projecting the sort of, what the fuck have I done? And the third reason just being, I guess, you know, how many ways can DC mess up? Now, I actually don't think that Ben Affleck is going to get up and leave, even though his script for... uh the Matt Reeves Batman film was rejected. The man is under contract, and he's a professional actor. He will carry out that. Yeah, contract. I don't. I, I don't. I doubt it's going back. to happen. Maybe, like maybe they're gonna kill him at the end of the solo movie. They're gonna set up a Nightwing 
or a Robin to take its place or whatever. That'd be nice. I could do it with some Nightwing. Hmm. Speaking but, of uh, the, the fact that we're talking about this is it's like it's already boring to me. Um, like, because like, he's boring. You know, he has been a very like, boring Batman. Like the Marvel movies are at this point. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's fine, but I can't get excited anymore because. They've been here too long. We've seen too many of them. It's like, yeah, it's one of them is more fun. One of them is less fun. But it's, it's a it's a thing. It's no longer an event. The DC movies are boring in terms of I don't want to think about it. Just it's a tr- it's an ongoing train wreck in terms of quality. And again, we must remind people we both did not enjoy Wonder Woman that much. So some people have their hopes built up yeah. again because they really like Wonder Woman. And fair is fair. You know, if you like it, you like it. It's Right now, it's the single most successful superhero movies in America of this year. It just passed Guardians of the Galaxy as we speak, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I'll say this much. And, like, being completely fair, right? Because I know that there are some people who... I've met, actually, some people who have confided in me that they enjoy Batman v Superman. Now, that's not a mindset that I could ever come to understand or agree with. But if that is your jam, you are going to get more of that. May it please you infinitely, right? For me, no thank you. But what I might be interested in, Tom, the one way DC might be able to appeal to me is not with their live-action movies, but with their animated movies. Mm -hmm. Because DC has announced three films, three animated films coming out shortly. The first is... Gotham by Gaslight, try saying that five times fast, uh, which is an Elseworlds, I think, taking place in Victorian London, right? Yes. Uh, it's Batman v. Jack the Ripper, right? I think so, yeah. The second yeah, one Yeah, yeah, is... I, I was confused with the Doom that came to Gotham, which was the Cthulhu one. That was Cthulhu. Yeah. yeah. So the second one is the Death and Return of Superman, which, oh my god, Which was the first DC animated movie already. It was? Superman, Superman Doomsday was the movie that started the lineup of the whole uh, straight-to-DVD animated movies. But that it wasn't was sh- canon, was it? None of them are, like, canon. They're, most of them are standalones. Mm. Some, but you know, hang like, on. They're, they're, they had Dooms- the Batman trilogy, which were related to one another. And, you know, like, after Flashpoint, they had, like, a series of five or six movies that could technically consider... A series because the Batmans were related and they led to Justice League and Teen Titans, uh-huh. but it's not really cl- like you could just watch the what was it Justice League Dark, yeah, on its was own it? and you and all of the ones that came before them like the Wonder Woman solo movie, the New Frontier movie, the whatever. Okay. So they already did it. It's, but hang it's on. T- was that the death and return of Superman? I remember like it was him it fighting was, Doomsday. It, he he was. Fighting Doomsday and he died. It was without all the clothes. The, the so maybe, f- yeah, that's the it, thing. It, there wasn't the four Supermans. There wasn't Superboy. There was just one evil clone in that movie. So that's, I think that's what they're the doing then. Villain. I mean, I'll uh, say this much. Let, let me just say this much then. Mm-hmm. Like, I, re- I have very dim memories of watching Superman Doomsday and being like, look, if you're going to do this storyline then you kind of do need to have the four Superman. That was do the you, whole point of it, right? You, did anybody ever woke up and said, you know what, I need in my life more cyborg Superman? Nobody said Come that. <laughs> Nobody said that. But Well, Jeff but, Johns said that for some... 
Jeff well, Jeff Johns, Johns is an idiot. idiot. We've established this for years. But the thing about the death and return of Superman is there is... And I'm not saying that it was well executed at the time because it absolutely was not. But there is a certain core premise there that you could have a good story from, which is the idea of Superman has died. There are these four imposters who are trying to take their place. Three of them might be the real thing. You know, Steel disqualifies himself immediately, says, I'm not him. But then you don't know if it's the Eradicator, the Cyborg, or Superboy. Any one of them might actually be Superman. And you had, I remember, like, there were certain issues where Lois was, like, looking into things. And sometimes, you know, she bumps into Superboy. And as he's teasing her, he slicks his hair back and puts on a pair of glasses. And for a second, she thinks that it's actually him. Like, there are certain things that you can do with that story that in the comics maybe didn't, you know, it was the 90s. Maybe that wasn't well thought out. But Superman Doomsday didn't do it. They just well, killed him off, put an evil clone in, and, and I remember in the end he fights like a hundred evil clones. No, 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 no. There was just one evil clone. So I'm, I'd be thinking of like super robots or something. I don't know. It's, it's all these okay. movies blur together. Uh, my if take you do it, on those on those two movies. Yeah. Uh, Gotham by Gaslight, sure in general, but it's another example of the DC animated line. Not being, uh, which is a good example of DC movies as a whole, not being able to do something that's not Batman or Superman adjacent. Mm-hmm. Even even the Justice League Dark, which was in the comic just a bunch of magical characters, became Batman and some guys. Like they can't let it go. In the Teen Titans uh, movie, they had two Teen Titans. The first one it was Titans versus Justice League, so of course Batman was there. The second was the Judas contract. They couldn't do Batman, so they said, okay, we'll have Robin and Nightwing at the same movie to compensate. They can't do one of them that's without without Batman or Superman, and that's annoying. Again, in the year where, what's the biggest superhero movie? Wonder Woman. Sure, surely you would announce a Wonder Woman project, right? We're working on that right now. It's our most successful property. Nope, nothing. And for Superman... I had to talk about it with uh, on Twitter with some comic professional who will not be named. Uh, DC, as a rule, like in the comic, in the movies, in the TV, and whatever, seems to be unable to tell any story with Superman that's not A, his origin story. Because when we go to DC Comics, part of the news, the, the comics comics, will get another version of his origin story. Or B, him dying. Like, they're uninterested, un able to do any story in which Superman is just Superman. Uh, I don't I'm know thi- if I'm, I'm, I'm agree thi- with I'm that. I'm thinking, I'm going to my comic book shop. No, but hang on I'm, a second. Hang wait, on, wait, hang wait, on. wait, wait, let me... I'm going to my comic book shop. And I'm looking at the Batman shelf, okay? And they have dozens of trades and some of them are, you know, takes on his origin story. Your year one, your earth one, whatever. But, but a lot of them are just Batman stories. I'm putting my eyes down to the Superman shelf. It's either Birthright or Earth One or Death of Superman. And if not them, it's Alternate Universe One side take. It's like Superman Secret Identity or Superman Red Sun. And I can't think right now of DC Comics in the last 10 years or so making any push towards just an ongoing Superman story as something to be resold. Like, you can do it on the monthly, but then... People forget about it. Kurt Busiek wrote Superman for like 
three years at a certain point, right? After the one year later story. Mm. And he scored music. And he did it with big name artists. Right now, you can't see any of that on the shelf. And to me, that's ridiculous. That's why. Well, no, the reason why is obvious. That was how many reboots of them? Uh, three. Okay, there, that's probably why. I, I can uh, see... Uh, you know what? Black Mirror. Batman Black Mirror is a huge seller. And that's also three reboots ago. So I'm sorry, that's no excuse. That's uh, ob- that's obviously no excuse. I can't, I can't even remember right now the last time I've seen John Byrne's Man of Steel on the shelf. No, but John Byrne's Man of Steel has aged horribly, Tom. There's stuff in there that doesn't even make any sense by today's standards. I mean, I, I understand, like, that specifically because it was, you know, you, when you talk about, like, these reboots, Earth 1, Birthright, and all these origin stories, the one thing that they do have in common that is not true of Man of Steel is that they don't try to answer questions that did not, like, what categorizes Man of Steel is John Byrne came up with this whole... The whole story was only to create some kind of really weird explanation as to why Superman could be born on Earth. He invented that whole concept of like the birthing matrix or something like that. Yeah, it, yeah. It was horseshit. It was just like a, a way of like imposing the most ridiculous detail that nobody even cared about. And nobody cares where Superman is born. It matters where he lives. You know, that that's just a waste of time. That I can understand why they don't want to deal with it. Also because it has him killing uh, General Zod and acting like it actually mattered. Uh, can't have that running around. Um, you know, All-Star Superman came out 2005, 2008. The film came out, like, when was the film? Five years ago, wasn't it? Yes. All-Star Superman. So there have been attempts, but I think the problem is, you know, Batman and Superman, th- that is the essential difference between them. It says that Superman has been elevated to a point where because he's such a paragon, because he has all of these powers, it is very difficult to come up with, not impossible, I'm not saying that it can't be done, like some people have made that argument. I'm saying it's very difficult to come up with long-running, sequential, interesting stories. Look at Lois and Clark. Right? That show ran for four seasons. Smallville ran for ten seasons. They had to do some pretty ridiculous things, though, in order to get that far. Because at some point, you do sort of bump up against the upper limit of, okay, the things that actually challenge Superman are what? The Tyrant Sun, right? Solaris, Dark Side. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know about you, Sean. I went outside today, and I'm down for a story in which Superman punches <laughs> an evil sun. I think, I, think, I think most of the population is down for that. They should they should bring him back. He was cool. Oh, he was man. cool. Yeah. But, but I, on I'm the other sorry, hand, I, again, I don't buy that. You know, he's not more powerful in terms of you know the limits are whatever the writer decides than your Green Lantern or your Doctor Strange or Thor. All of them are just as strong as the as the writer decides. Yes, but the problem that Superman has... In fact, when you think about it, like, Green Lantern has a very similar problem. What is the most memorable story that that a Green Lantern has been in in the last five years was Omega Man, and in order to get there, he took away his powers, right? Like, what big Green Lantern story has happened lately? They're constantly squabbling with all the colors of the rainbows. Nobody can tell the difference well, between again, any I, of them. Again, I didn't, I didn't like it, but the Jeff Jones run was very popular. Like, but the popular. Jeff Jones run was ages ago. You're talking about like when he yeah. first brought back Hal Jordan. 
it was popular all the way to the end and that was five years ago yes Robert yeah, so Diddy I think it was the big name writer after that and he just didn't seem to click yeah. in the same the, manner the the problem the way that I see it and and I think we've talked about this before like the issue with the DC with a lot of the DC heroes not Batman specifically but a lot of them is that in order for you to actually believably challenge them you either have to have a character who is there who can uniquely challenge them the way that Lex Luthor does with Superman right where Superman see this is oh you know it, it's really like opening up a lot of doors here like think about it this way in an in a typical Lex Luthor versus Superman confrontation, the thing that prevents Superman from actually stopping Lex Luthor is that he doesn't actually have any way to reach across the table and break the guy's neck, right? He's an industrialist, he's politically powerful, he cultivates this image of like being, you know, the, uh, this philanthropist. He is shielded from anything other than direct action and Superman can't take that kind of direct action. Of course, when it's Henry Cavill, you pit him up against Lex Luthor and it's like, well, just go ahead and break this guy's neck too. Mm. You know, then it's like there's no defense mechanism anymore because Superman doesn't care about those things anymore. And it's the same, you know, Wonder Woman here, the, the film, right, pits her against Ares. Who else were you going to put her up against? Who would uh, she have fought? You know. The, the next movie, Cheetah. Or Cheetah or what's the name of the other one? Um, no, that, that was a j- yeah, no, that was a joke because once you start with the God of War, you probably have nowhere to go, right? Exactly. I mean, I mean one of our criticisms of that film was you defeated the God of War in World War One. so what exactly happened in World War Two? I think you know, they said the next movie is going to be a Cold War movie, so... Great! That's uh, if interesting. So, that's it interesting. is interesting, but I, I, like that's the catch, right? And who's the other big threat for Superman is Doomsday. You can't really do anything with no, 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 no. Right? I, I think you can like you have Brainiac, which is a good use of the idea of he's the legacy of Krypton, and in in the metaphorical terms, like at least in the TV show, I haven't read a lot of Brainiac in the comics, where he was the hyper intelligence that operated Krypton and then allowed yeah. the planet to die. So Superman fighting him is again metaphorically fighting his own legacy, and you can't kill him because, as he keeps on saying. I'm the only thing left of your home. Like, destroy yeah. me, and you destroyed your memories. That Which was is- one of the biggest scenes, you remember, in um, in Justice League, when they go to help Darkseid against Brainiac, and the first time they see he's like, well, if your father couldn't stop me, what chance do you have? That is an excellent villain line to throw at Superman. Yes. Right? But but how many characters can actually pull that off? Well, you could go Mr. Mixaspizliak. Oh, I would love if I would if, love that. I would, I would love if that. the next Superman movie, after you know, after the Zack Snyder <laughs> would have been would just be a comedy like this grim, dark version of Superman just came back from the dead with his nineties mullet, and suddenly his villain. Hey, McGurk! <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, I, I would I, love that. I think we should probably go on to actual comics news. Oh, great. Okay, fantastic. So uh, I've got two that just jumped out of the page at me. First of all, there's going to be a third Umbrella Academy series from Wei and Ba in 2018. Uh, yes, please. I'm not surprised. You know, they've announced the TV show. The second series, if I remember correctly, left enough open space for them to do whatever they want. Yeah. And uh, I I wasn't head over heels with Umbrella Academy as some, but I like it. You know, it was a good series. 
it was a breath of fresh air, I think, both for uh, Dark Horse in terms of what they usually publish and because it managed to evoke a lot of superhero tropes without sort of falling into the nadir of it all. Okay. Uh, now the, uh, what next? So, I would like to give a special shout-out to Boom Comics, who had a presentation at SDCC called The Five Biggest Problems in Comics. They listed five issues that, according to them, were causing serious damage to the industry, and they are as follows. Number one, too many books. Number two, too many recycled concepts. Number three, tired customers. Number four, late shipping titles. Number five, too much risk. Now, had I been there, I would have perhaps suggested that they added a sixth, which is too damn expensive. But maybe that's what they meant by risk. Uh, too many recycled scripts from the future publisher of Clueless, the, the comic. That's not recycled, though. It's, it's a literal... It's, it's a movie from 20 years ago. So? That's recycled. That's no more... No, no, no. That's no that's more recycled, recycled than, than Gem would be. Well, it's a recycled concept. What, what's a recycled script? Do people actually do that nowadays? Just no, recycle the same script over and over again? Uh, do you not remember when we were talking about, uh, what was his name, Kyle Higgins having the exact same concept for Nightwing the New Order that well, he did again, for Power Rangers? You're, you're not talking about script, you're talking about concept, which is... Concept? Well, no, how, that... many, how many murders on a space station does Image have? Five? Six? No, I think that, well, yeah, that's part of the problem. That's what they were talking about. Like, you know, I think there's a difference between saying I'm going to write a sequel to this 20-year-old movie that's not necessarily recycled, right? Gem is not recycled because it is something that, you know, it's an adapt it's adaptation on the one hand. It takes these, th there's a level of differentiation there. I think when they're talking about recycling in comics, they're referring more to the issue of like, the same ideas cropping up over and over again. Yes, images murders on a space station or uh, generic fantasy realm is part of the problem. Uh, you know, that's... And in fact, even, you know, even Boom with their uh, all-ages uh, adventures can fall into that category sometimes. How many mystery machines can you, vi can you feel the Boom? All Pretty of much. them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, late shipping titles is a huge problem for Image. It's a huge problem for for the big two as well. Uh, too many books. I mean, we're, we have been, I think both of us have been sort of astonished at the glut that has been going on in the main the mainstream market, right? 70 books from Marvel, 52 books from DC, 100 books. It, it gets ridiculously overwhelming at some point. And yes, the customers are tired. I'm tired. I'm well, tired as hell. I, I just, you know, okay, they pointed problems. Uh, I think it's, it's you know, fine. It's, it, it would have been fine if a podcast would have just said, well, these are problems with the comic book market. But boom, basically picked the problems that's not their own because they don't, they never had that many books. Like they've cut down a bit, but they, they were never Image or, God forbid, Marvel. No, but the point of and, their presentation... And, and because, and because they, they're doing many miniseries mostly, they don't have late shipping titles often, which is fine, but, you know, I, I could also add to the problem 
not paying artists on time or enough, which is a problem that Boom had over the years. Uh, enough gets into a whole question of like, you know, work for hire and what did they sign up for contract? I don't want to get into like that level of litigation, but no, the point of their presentation was in fact that they were taking steps to address all five of those, right? In, in response to the whole issue of tired customers, they talked about their online pro, online program and how you don't have to go to local comic book shops. Uh, too many books, they've reduced their, uh, overall titles by 15%. That's why they're mostly running miniseries now. To avoid that and to avoid the issue of late shipping titles. You know, so th- the way that they were phrasing it is obviously it's self-promotion, right? It's these are the big problems in the industry and we are taking steps to combat that. Fair enough. I just I'm grateful that they did point it out because it has been, you know, these problems have been at the heart of everything that's going on in the direct market right now. And the situation isn't good there, you know, so... No matter how Marvel and to a lesser extent DC try to play the numbers, you know, the facts are the facts. And if Boom does manage to convince other uh, publishers that, you know, first of all, that these issues exist. And second of all, you know, it is not the end of your business model to make necessary changes. Maybe it's not too late. I don't know. But I am glad that they did it. I just, you know, it's an okay observation. It's just nothing new to me. And I think to you either. I do have something, uh, small press news from SDCC, which will lead us, I think, directly to Marvel. Go for it. Which would allow us a nice little crossover. Uh, Top Shelf have announced the fourth and final volume in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen (laughs) series. Number four, wait, wait, number four, Tempest by Ellen Moore and Kevin O'Neill, as usual. And, you know, cross my heart and swear to die, it's the last work in comics by Ellen Moore. Again. Yeah, that one before. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Uh, was Providence's last work in comics or Neonomicon? Yep. No, Providence. Yeah, Providence was his last work in comics last year. This and, is the uh, end. I'm not coming back anymore. Enjoy it while it lasts. So expect another series of interviews where somebody asks a one-line question and Ellen Moore answers with a five-page speech. I am intrigued by, because it wasn't really obvious, does Kevin O'Neill leave in comics as well? Well, he hasn't said anything to that effect. The way that it was phrased was that, like, it's the big goodbye project. But Kevin O'Neill, I mean, as far as I know, he's, like, in his early 60s. I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, because yeah. his last work, his only work beside League over the last few years was a book, uh, which he co-wrote with Pat Mills, a serial killer, which mm. is identified on the cover as first in the series. They're going to do sequels. Hang on, Tom. When you say that, you mean that the name of the book is a serial killer, not that Pat Mills is a serial killer. Well, Pat Mills only kills, you know, uh, artists and writers who annoy him. <laughs> like don't don't get don't get up at Mill's bad side, which I think is like ninety percent of him is his bad side. Yeah, pretty much. Like a nice guy in person, um, but if you yeah. believe the stories, a terror to work with. Uh, so I I don't think so. I don't think that O'Neill specifically said that he would be leaving. It's more a question of I think without um, sort of the guaranteed income of these league projects, will he be seeking employment with other companies? And I think, you know, most people would hire Kevin O'Neill. 
Well, he is a very... I don't, because most of the time when artists are really, really slow in comics, it's because they have side projects in movie development, like they're concept artists. Mm. Jeff, Jeff Darrow can allow himself to only produce one comic every four years because he gets most of his money from Hollywood. Yeah. So, because does Kevin O'Neill does that? Because he is, his comics projects do come out in slow drips. He hasn't done, I think, anything aside from League in the last, 10 years and that's only one book every three or four years at this point mm. when was century century uh, was before oof. century was before this podcast started i believe and that's yeah years by now i think it was before neonomicon too yeah no no, no that no neonomicon started in 2015 we were there when neonomicon started yeah but century was i think 2013 2014 like it straddled between years and mm-hmm. you get why he's slow he has a very detail heavy style and it's all very lovely and worth the wait always say what you will about the plots the art is worth the wait for yeah but i wouldn't you know what we know about comics and payment i wouldn't really be surprised if he just decided screw that i'm breaking my eyes and i'm breaking my hand you know working forever for a book that comes out and then disappears between as you said too many other books i can just publish a novel I can work with Pat Mills and write especially, something, and I and I don't have to kill myself for it. Especially when the writer you're working with is Alan Moore, who you know, God bless him, but we know that he can be a bit of a handful. Not everyone is Eddie Gamble in terms of knowing how to deal with him. Mm. Well, they, know, they, so. they, it's one of the longest partnership in Alan Moore's career now. Because when was the first league book? Ninety nine or so. Yeah, but they weren't working consistently together. No, but and still, also, you, know, like, you know, mo- mo- most people at this point, you know, we would read an interview where Ellen Moore is like, oh, he betrayed my trust. <laughs> I would never go near that guy again. Like, Such Dave Gibbons queen. betrayed me. Dave Lloyd betrayed me. Everybody betrayed I think the only two people he's still friends with from the comic industry at this point are Neil Gaiman, you know, the nicest man around, and Eddie yeah. Campbell. Who also a very nice guy. So you just can't, you you're legally not allowed to be angry at those folk. I think uh, he's such a drama queen. Mm-hmm. Okay, Moving now <laughs> I am my thoughts about league and you know yes. tempest very appropriate. You know the last play, blah blah blah. Mm. I did not like Black Dossier, and to me that was the perfect example of the problems with Lake Moore, which was it wasn't a story. It was an old man showing off his library. And as I've said before, Ellen Moore, you're smarter than me. I know that. You don't have to spend 150 pages telling me that over and over again. Yeah. But I, as much as I didn't like it, I was impressed by that. You know, by the sheer heft and, and avant-gardeness of it all. So I am going to read Tempest, you know, believe it or not, John. I know at this point you couldn't care less. I'm still interested in what Ellen Moore is doing. That's fair. You know, I would never... That's the thing. Like, I would never say to anyone else, like, don't bother with him. I understand, like, that there are still things about him and about his style that appeal to people. The craft is still there. You know, the the craft in many ways just kept on getting better. It's just that the human side of the writing evaporated. And, you know, this is a problem. I think this, it really does go to, like, one of the central disagreements that you and I tend to have with specific writers like Ellen Moore, like Warren Ellis, like Grant Morrison, which is that, you know, the, there are really two ways that you can enjoy these people. 
if you enjoy it for the purposes of craft specifically, in terms of conceptually and artistically what they are doing, and it doesn't really matter to you whether the story entertains you or not because the craft is still there and Promethea does still turn into like this 800-page dissertation on the tarot that folds out and goes up on a wall or whatever. So as long as all that is the case, it's like, yeah, okay, fine, I get it. The other way is if you're thinking of them as writers and as people who you would hope would craft interesting stories, uh, they can get lost up their own butts, in which case... You know, I, I appreciate everything that Alan Moore did in the past, but as I've said before, I don't have any loyalty to him anymore because he hasn't cultivated it. And, you know, I don't believe that he cares who reads his stuff at this point. It, I, it is impossible for me to believe that Alan Moore is like, gee, I hope they like this. No, he, it's but, more well, like, he, I'm going to do my said thing. It, you. I think he, he was very straightforward in the past that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't write for his readers. Yep. You know, if you like it, you like it. But as far as he's concerned, you know, he's the artist and you have to follow him, not the other way around. Which, you know, fine. And yeah, and there are some people that I am willing to do that for up to an extent. After Neonomicon, that's not something that I give Ellen Moore anymore. Now, speaking of Ellen Moore and all the works, see, see, I'm setting up the crossover to the Marvel <laughs> bit, bit of news. Uh, Mark Buckingham claims that he's drawing pages for the not-published parts of Marvel Man slash Miracle Man The Silver Age by Gaiman right now. Like, as we speak, he's doing it. You will see them. No, well, to, probably to be not. Accurate, to be accurate, what he has... Well, he... What, what was said at the, uh, the Marvel panel was that he is redrawing the older issues, presumably the stuff that actually came out. I don't know why... But, well, I guess I do know why, actually, because the art in the early issues was not great for the Silver Age. By that point, you could tell that, like, Eclipse were going out of business or whoever it was back then. So, uh, um, now, while, yeah. why, while the, these news were published in Bleeding Cool, I was having a Twitter talk. I'm connected to anything with, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it right, uh, Phil Sandifer. Mm-hmm. And he wrote uh, The Last War in Albion, the nonfiction book about the war between Moore and Morrison, okay. which I've read some parts of. I haven't finished it. It looks really good. And we started talking on Twitter on something separate, and some other people joined in. And somebody, again, I will not name him, uh, brought up the claim that Marvel has pretty much gave up the idea of ever finishing Marvel Men because the, the project hasn't brought in enough money. They really fought reprinting Marvel Men in single issues, which I don't know if you remember were five dollars each, something ridiculous like that. Before they did the jump to everything is five bucks, mm-hmm. they thought this would be the money making machine. They thought they could resell in trades. I don't know if you remember. All they tried Marvel selling Man. the Mick Anglo stuff. See, that's yeah. what astonishes me. Like, you're saying that, but I'm like, there's no way they could have... Well, this is the dueling impulses. There's no way they could have thought that because they started by publishing, like, the stuff that nobody gave a shit about for years before uh, yeah. Miracle Man started coming and if, out. If you go on Amazon UK right now, you can buy the Mick Angelo Marvel Man for a dollar, and that's mm-hmm. a 35 buck trade, like, hardcover. Not yeah. even secondhand. That's the Amazon price. Yeah. When I when I was uh, when when I visited my local comic book shop like last year, 
they gave me an offer. Hey, Tom, do you want the first 10 issues of Moore's Marvel Men for, do- for a dollar each? Like, order them directly for Marvel for a dollar each. They can't shift it. They can't move it. And therefore, they said, well, to hell with it. We're not paying Neil Gaiman, uh, Neil Gaiman's money, which is today, like, I assume... Ex- I, don't, I can't even assume. Like, an exuberant amount per issue for him to finish this project because we're not going to recoup it. But and wasn't so finishing the Marvel project... Men- no, hang on a second though. But wasn't finishing the project part of that whole legal process? Well, they didn't the, have to pay him. Like, ag- no, no, no. I think what I understand is that he could finish the project, and they wanted him to finish the project because the assumption was, well, we'll make a lot of money out of it. But now, but it, I don't think he ever agreed. Well, you know, you'll untangle the rights, and I'll write you a comic for free. Neil Gaiman does not write you a comic book for free. Especially if you're Marvel goddamn comics. No, but I thought that them taking care of like the legal fees and stuff like that was part of the deal. I don't know. I don't remember no, no, no. the specifics. Um, uh, the deal was, as far as I know, they got the right to reprint the old stuff. And mm-hmm. Gaiman would agree to write, you know, to finish the thing, but they would still have to pay him. Right. So they've given so up I, As far as I understand, and again, nobody's actually involved with Marvel and it's just people talking from the side. Some are industry insiders, some are not. Marvel have given up the ghost. They were like, no, the hell with it. We're not going to make enough money out of it. And apparently, even the fact that stu- the, the stuff we thought was solved wasn't completely solved. Like, some other parties involved in the original rights issue are now coming back in. Their so, uh, I think... It's time to accept the fact, John, that Marvel Man will probably never be finished. You know what? Never. I'll tell you something. Let me tell you something, Tom. Okay. I have gotten to a place with Miracle Man where what I can say is this. Let's be zen for a second and say that if this whole experiment produced nothing else... It did give us high-quality reprints of the Golden Age. No, sorry. What was this? Uh, the, the Moore Trilogy and Gaiman's The Golden Age, right? Four books of Miracle Man. The Golden Age is fine on its own. If you yeah. read it as an epilogue to Moore's Trilogy, which for many years people just had to do because we didn't have anything else, you know, then, then that is what it is. If the Silver Age and the Dark Age never come out, then you know what? That's not on us. That's not down to anything that readers did. Uh, Marvel completely screwed the pooch. If they had had any intention of making actual money off Miracle Man, there is no reason on God's green earth that they should have started by throwing out dozens of Mick Anglo reprints, which nobody cared about. They devalued the brand themselves before they even got around to the stuff that people were actually waiting for. And there was so much hype when they announced that they were going to finish it. The, it blew the, the ceiling off the building when they announced it, right? It was this huge news. They were going to republish one of the ancient classics and you could reintroduce it to new readers now and show them all of this stuff. 
And they made it through the Moor Run, and they made it through the, uh, the Golden Age, and if that's all we get, then at least we don't have to go scrounging through eBay and back columns and all of this garbage to get these books. Now, I'm guessing they're probably on Marvel Unlimited or something. They've got to be somewhere, right? Comixology or whatever. At least now we have it in high quality. I if we, If the rights are becoming tangled again, I would say... Uh, kids, buy a physical copy now because quite possibly if it's on Marvel now, it will not be in the future. And yeah, if it's to, on Comixology, it might just disappear. I mean, to be blunt, once it went digital, it doesn't even matter anymore. That's the thing. Like, once it goes digital, then at that point, it's like, even if they do take it yeah, down... I, I, you know, do, I do agree that Marvel... It's the Marvel thing of let's squeeze the reader for what for what's his worth, right? Because the smart thing, the simple thing would be, okay, we have the rights to Miracle Man. We will now publish it in four or five large expensive hardcover, like good-looking hardcovers. We can charge $40. Not many people will be dead annoyed for it. But instead, they were like, let's publish it in single issues with some extra material nobody cared for. per issue for no reason whatsoever, for stuff that's already out there. That's insane. And let's expect the market to support it. Why? Why would I do that? Yeah. It was stupid. And, you know, the fact that DC was able to capitalize on Gaiman's popularity to do the Sandman prequel, they had him for eight issues. And, yeah, it lasted for three years because of delays and whatnot. People still went and bought it. You know, that's still a name that compels some kind of loyalty. By the way, does does Overture sell well in trade? Do you know? Because we talked about it when the trade first appeared, what mm-hmm. the, when they finished the storyline. And I don't think I heard anybody talking about it ever since. Like, it's not... Uh, it's never in conversation. Nobody ever says, well, let's, th- let's talk about Sandman Overture. Well, no, I'm assuming that what happens now is that when people market like the 10 trades, you know, the evergreen trades, Overture probably makes the list at some point of essential reading for Sandman. So my guess would be, and I don't know how relevant that is these days, if people actually do still go out and pick up the Sandman as an Sand- Sandman comics. is still popular. It's not as popular as it once was because, yeah. as we've said, image shifted image. the market. Yeah, well, specifically what happened now is that like, Image now has a certain stranglehold on titles that people might be more likely to recommend to people outside of comics as come take a look at this rather mm-hmm. than Sandman. Sandman yeah, in fa- some fables, aspects, to- fables took the lead for a while and now it's Saga and The Walking Dead. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know to what extent that's still the thing, but I have to imagine that now when people talk about it, it's like, okay, you know, you have the 10 books and you also have um, Overture. Yeah, um, that would be my guess. Okay, speaking of Marvel, an actual yeah. Marvel comic that sounds interesting. Good. I need you to explain to me why you think that, but go ahead. Uh, Marvel have announced a new project by alternative cartoonist Ed Piscor of uh, Hip Hop Family Tree fame called X Men Grand Design, which will be a short retelling of the first. 280 X-Men issues from Leon Kirby through Claremont and Byrne and I'm not so hip on my classic X-Men did something special happen in 280? Uh, that was uh, Claremont's last issue okay okay I didn't remember then they relaunched as just X-Men right with Jim Lee 
No, we kept going with like, uh, was it Will Spartatio? Somebody oh, like that. Oh, oh, that's when Bishop oh, right. came in. Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, and they, and they launched, everybody. they launched the second book, but the original Uncanny kept going. So this is different. The last time Marvel did something like this, I believe, was when James Storam did uh, Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules. You remember that miniseries that reimagined the real versions of the Fantastic Four as like 1960s uh, regular folk? Is that analogous to this? I No, no, I'm just saying bringing in alternative cartoonists, giving him a prestige format and pumping it in. It's not just a back-end project. It's something they push. Like, this is something that they want to sell. And Marvel hasn't been doing something like this forever. Mm-hmm. And I'm intrigued. I am not the biggest uh, Piscore fan. I've read some of Hip Hop Family Tree. And it's very impressive, the amount of like research he does. But every issue of that thing is long like it's tons of text it's like a proper history lesson and i've i've read the first issue of the ongoing version of it from fantagraphics and i finished it and i was like i need i need to read something lighter like <laughs> like i need i need to read the longest day again <laughs> something a bit less, less research heavy um i get that um but i think he's a really good artist why I think this project is going to be good is that uh, Piscor to me comes from the same line of the uh, what's his name, the guy who does Copra Thief. Yeah, that there are these alternative creators who, instead of growing up, you know, extolling your crumbs and your uh, comics with an X, they grow up reading and loving superhero, classic superhero comics. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't come to this from this place of like irony and distancing he seems to come to it from a place of true love and let's see what we can do with this classic story and when you tell that to me i'm thinking oh tom scioli on transformers and you know my mind lights up like doing nostalgia right not just nostalgias for nostalgia's sake just using it as a platform for doing something interesting with these old stories well Here's the problem I, I sort of have with it. It would have been interesting, I think, to see this in any other context. The problem with X-Men Grand Design specifically is that, you know, they're talking about retelling the story of the first 280 issues of X Uncanny X-Men as if it were a single narrative. But the problem is, when you look at the history of X-Men, and, you know, there are podcasts that do this, uh, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men being the obvious example, is that it breaks down into two parts. They're wildly asymmetrical, but two parts. You have the early period with Stanley giving way to Roy Thomas, right, which are these 70s adventures. They're very disposable. They don't really do much of anything. It's very, very, very old school. And quite frankly, they have tried to retell that period a dozen different ways. They've brought those X-Men into the present and completely done nothing with them. You know, so all there's that, right? And then you have the Chris Claremont period, which I think goes from 94 to 280. It already is one narrative. You see what I'm saying? Like, if it had been Spider-Man or... A title or like Fantastic Four or Avengers where other, a lot of other creators came in and changed things and 
what this project wants to do is impose some kind of overall narrative, that would be interesting. X-Men, it was Chris Claremont for 200 issues. And he did, like, one of the things that characterizes him, I'm not saying he always succeeded, you know, Claremont has his issues as a writer, and we've talked about that before, but he absolutely did set up storylines and then pay them off years into the future, or introduce characters and then have them come back around. Like, he really did impose a sort of monolithic, singular narrative onto this monthly book that ran for 16 years. Yeah, but so there I, is, I think, some value to the at least the attempt to narrow it all down. Like, what? How? how is he going to, like you said, take this 200th issue thing and make it a single story in, I guess he has like six issues? Something like that? I don't... I don't know why that... See, that's the thing. Like, I don't know why... In order for you to do that, the only real thing that's that could help with that would be to cut, right? But I don't know what value that has. Like, so what I, you're I, saying, I, it's I, a Reader's I, Digest version, basically. Again, I don't know I, that I need... I'm saying it's a Reader's Digest version, basically. I don't know I that don't, I, I don't that. think you hired Ed, Ed Piscor, and I don't think Ed Piscor brought this project himself because he... He actually brought out a tweet he did like five years ago of, oh, if I had one project, I would do this, like as a joke. And then this joke became real. So I don't think the, he, he, the f- he's brought in, he brought himself in whatever just to do a Reader's Digest. I think he has an angle. We don't know what this angle is yet. But with a creator like this, you know, for good or mm-hmm. ill, and like I said, not my favorite guy, but I think he has an angle. And I'm interested to discover what this angle is. Would it necessarily sure be good? No, obviously not. It's if nothing else, it's one hell of a challenge. Like it's one hell of a challenge to make it into a good story, an interesting story, without just being uh, what was it called? The Marvel sagas. You remember when mythos? They, yeah, mythos. No, the, the what well, the Marvel ex- saga one shots that tried to like narrow down eighteen issues into one story's right. worth. So, well, see, but that's exactly, that's sort of the, the question that I wanted to ask. Like, how is that any different? You know, he wants to, what he, what has been stated so far in terms of like grand design specifically is that he is basically going to put his own spin on like a condensed version of this grand narrative of the X-Men that goes from 1963 to whenever Chris Claremont left. I'm like, okay, first of all, big mistake. Because, again, you know, it is, you're trying to impose cohesion on a narrative that already is cohesive. If he had said, I want to do that for the Nicieza and Lobdell years, that would have made sense. Because, first of all, there's a ton to improve. Second of all, because of all the editorial chaos at the time, they, you you remember, like, all of the nonsense that the X-Men had to deal with in terms of continuity comes from that period the whole thing of the third Summers brother that Brubaker ended up picking up and doing really terrible things Sean, with. Sean, 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 Sean. What? Like, do you hate it, Piscor? Do you want to force him to reread <laughs> 90s X-Men? And like, no, but I'm, but j- I'm just saying to, like, Just to make, like, this is your punishment. You will now read, <laughs> you will now read the Onslaught Saga 20 times and, and redo no. the Onslaught Saga and tell it in a way that makes sense. And he's just sitting there bound to his table 
It's like the basements of Marvel are like, it's impossible. Nobody no, can no, no, make. No, no. Hang on. Uh, hang on. What nobody I'm, could ha- make the Onslaught saga work. And Sean, uh, hang on. a horrible what? story for you, for, for our dear listeners. This was the first comics I ever read. The Onslaught saga were the first explains comics I've ever read. So much. They that explains a lot. They were translated into Hebrew in the mid-90s. And I was, you know, I, I was just a kid. You know, I came out from watching the X-Men, the animated series. And I'm like, oh, there's this X-Men comic. Mommy, mommy, buy this to me. And uh, <laughs> like that okay. was, uh, and you know what? They also did Spider-Man, the same people. And you know what Spider-Man they translated? The Ben oh. Riley version. No, not the Clone Saga. No, 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 no the, the, the post so just... saga, like when he was just uh, when he when he was Spider-Man proper. Which <laughs> you're picking up this comic, like, oh, I'm gonna read Spider-Man. Who's this blonde guy? <laughs> what's this costume? I have no so, idea what's no, going me, on. Let me explain. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Like the thing here is, it comes to the question of what is more valuable, right? In terms of. Trying to sell this to me, right? I'm an, I am an X-Men fan. And I haven't been reading X-Men for a very long time precisely because I hate what Bendis did with the book. I'm not a fan of what they're doing right now with the gold and the blue and Cullen Bunn and Guggenheim. These are not names that I want, that I care about. I don't read X-Men anymore. And I would like to. But the problem is, like, all due respect to this guy, because I'm not saying, like, I don't know him in terms of his talent. You say, like, he's a very popular alternative con- cartoonist on the level of Michelle Fee. Fine, I completely accept that. But purely in terms of how they are presenting this, it's like, there is a lot of value in trying to take this huge mass of tangled up, screwed up, loose ends, mistakes, things that don't make any sense, and really sort of refine it and make it good. If Layla Miller proves nothing else, it's that a good enough writer can take a really crappy concept and spin gold out of it. That's what Peter David did, right, on X Factor. He made Layla Miller, a character Brian Bendis introduced as a plot device in House of M, and made her an incredibly compelling character. If, so, like, of the two periods of, like, the the two sort of dominant periods of X-Men history that you could potentially apply that kind of revision to, who do you do it with? The The Chris Claremont run, which already holds together to the extent that, like, you know... And really, like, listening to... I'm shouting them out on purpose because they did such a great job with this. Listening to Jay and Miles go through issue by issue, you can see how far in advance Claremont plotted some of those things. Like, in, Seeds to Inferno were being dropped, like, a hundred issues earlier or stuff like that. Crazy stuff. Now, that being the case, the question then has to be, okay, so this already had a singular artistic vision and a largely coherent story that did not get derailed by crossovers, by ideas that editorial shot down, right? None of that. Claremont managed to run the book for 16 years largely without interference. And then you have this period of absolute bedlam, Tom. Insanity. Plot lines being brought up when neither the artist nor the writer had any idea where they came from. In fact, you mentioned it. Onslaught, right? Onslaught is originally presented as a crime boss. It was originally thought to be the owl. It didn't become. Yeah. As far as I know, they had no idea what Onslaught was. They just, 
you know, editorial told writers put this onslaught thing in. What? What's exactly. onslaught? We haven't decided yet. Exactly. That is a period where that is what characterized a lot of X Men stories that were coming out at the time. It was just pure random insanity because nobody knew this was around the time of the image exodus. So there was a lot of insanity going around over there. If any period of X-Men history could benefit from somebody coming in and saying, let's try and make sense out of this shit and structure it properly and tell an actual story, that would be it. I don't know how much benefit there is to applying that to Claremont when that's already what he did. Like, it's, to me, it sounds like this guy just wants to do what John Byrne did in the hidden years and be like, well, this is the X-Men, but it's my take on the X-Men. And I'm like, great. How does I that make you I, different again, from... Again, it's not very nice to compare people to John Byrne, especially mm-hmm. children but of that's the what he did. version of John Byrne. <laughs> but that's what he did. Because, that no, is exactly John, what he John did. John Byrne's version of respect the original creators was always like, I know what they're thinking. Like, trust me, I know what, what the people who created Spider-Man want. They wanted uh, uh, Osborne and the Simmons to be brothers because they have the same hairstyle. And he couldn't, you couldn't just pop in and ask Stanley what he thought about it. And he would tell you, no, I, I never intended that. That's stupid. Uh, I think what, what it comes to this. I think there is a value for someone who's way outside the Marvel House style in terms of writing and art. Coming in and doing a take on an existing story. I think there is an inert value to see what he does with it. Just like I think there is an inert value for a new take on Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet. Uh, years ago, Paul Pope did his own version of Omec number one, of Jack Kirby's Omec number one. The exact same script, just his art. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating to me just to see the difference. Now, to some people, they would say, you know, Kirby is perfect, there is nothing to improve, what's the point? Others would say, just do your own story. I do think there is something interesting there. I want to see what he does. Will it be good or bad? We'll have to wait and see. I'm just happy that Marvel is doing something that I can talk about it that's not a goddamn relaunch, that's not a goddamn reboot, that's not a goddamn crossover that's actual comic by a comic person who wants to make comic for its own sake. Uh, I guess. I mean, it really, it, it, it comes I, down like, to I don't, ultimately... I don't have the same reverence for... Claremont's X-Men that you have. It's not an issue of reverence. No, 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 no. It's it's not an issue of reverence. All I'm saying is, like, at the end of the day, I need someone to explain to me how this grand design thing is meant to be perceived differently than any other creator coming in and being like, let me tell the... I mean, you were complaining about this with Superman. Let me tell the origin story. I want because, to tell because, because in that case they're usually bringing in people who already do house style. Like, when, I I like Mark Wade, but you know Mark Wade is gonna tell his version of the Superman story. It's not you know it's a better quality than Burns' version, and it's less old timey at this point. But it's you know it's the same thing. If you if you're telling me oh I'm bringing in Brandon Grant to tell you the version of the Superman story, now I'm interested because what what will he do? I have no idea. Brandon Grant still writes comics though. Well, and so does this no, guy. No, but, but it's so different. Like, if yeah. you bring in someone so outside the normal wheelhouse to work for you, I'm interested simply because, well, it's different. And I mean, I, it's, 
It's definitely a title that we'll review, I think. It's something that's worth looking at. I'm just saying, like, I can't get worked up about it as someone who wants to read X-Men again because this, to me, just reads like another creator who wants to, you know, do the old thing again instead of... Like, if you're going to ape anybody's approach to the X-Men, ape Grant Morrison's, who at least tried to do something different. Like, don't do the same... Like, Grant Design is essentially like, let me summarize the Claremont years my way. I'm like, okay, so what fine. You're, what you're saying is that you want Ed Biscor to do the story that will explain how Zorn works. Listen, now, at, <laughs> least, at least that would have some value. Put no, a nail because, in again, the nobody could explain Zorn. how Zorn... How Zorn... Zorn? Zorn? Zorn. Shorn. Shorn. Yeah, Sean. Sean. <laughs> It was you all it's along. Me. It you was me sword. all along, Austin. I, I... Okay, what's the other bit of news? Uh, Marvel announced an East Asian superhero imprint that will be printing two titles, Arrow and Swordmaster, in mm. East Asian countries first. Now, Marvel being Marvel, I'm not entirely sure if they know that Japan and China are different places in East Asia. Wait, wait, wait. But... Arrow? Arrow. A-E-R-O. Like the DC TV show? No, 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 no. Aero. A-E-R-O. Like the wind. Oh, Oh, okay. So, I don't know if they're particularly equipped for that, because let us not forget that the last time they tried to appeal to uh, Eastern, East Asian audiences, Joe Quesada tried that Phoenix manga, where she had, like, the teeny-weeny bikini. You remember uh, that, is, right? Is it by is it by American creators or is it just uh, them announcing their printing in stuff that's already made by their divisions in certain East Asian countries? Because as we've talked, they have this Avengers Assemble versus Zombies thing, which is a translation to English of a Korean version of the Avengers. Yeah, to my knowledge, I think it's the latter. But they weren't super specific about it at the panel. They just announced that this thing existed. Now, uh, normally, you know, I'm like, okay, fine. It's it's interesting that they are trying to expect that. At least I think, you know, we have criticized Marvel so often for not thinking outside the box. That is at least an effort to expand their audiences in a way that does not rely on the direct market. Yep. Marvel Magniverse 2. Oh, uh, God. Spider-Man India. Ooh, no, no, we don't need that. <laughs> DC uh, Comics, Tom. Are uh, you Frank excited? Miller is going to write Year One with art by John Romita Jr. So, as we've said, Superman, the, the two stories that you can tell, <laughs> he's either dying or he's being born. When was the last time Frank Miller wrote a good comic? 99? 97? <laughs> I'm serious, uh, not not joking. Okay. Like because I'm you want to have like fan, that serious even talk. I, you know, with all the being nice in the world, is like the middle of Sin City. Let's. You want to do this like the fair way? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's be fair. So, Let's be nice. If we are okay, we are talking about the bibliography of Frank Miller and when it went so damn wrong for him. I would have to say, Martha Washington. 1997 to 1998 was like the last time that he wrote that character. From that point onward, to the best of my recollection, was the latter half of Sin City, right? Yeah. That's when it went downhill. Something about the process of him getting stuck in Sin City for as long as he did 
warped his brain. And yeah, we've all heard the stories about all the other stuff he was going through. I don't care. Like, permit me to be blunt and say, you know, what matters to me is what sees print, not what the the circumstantial evidence around it. So, yeah, it, it was not, um, you know, Sin City at some point got very, very old. It really did allow him, I think, to get locked into that sort of whores, whores, whores mindset. He became and a parody it, of himself. Yeah, and, he did. And, and you know, and I, I would defend his old stuff to death, but not, I, th- I, I, I do really think Martha Washington is from 2000 onwards. Like, yeah, Dark Horse have announced well, again. I, I think for the third time in a row that they're doing the 300 sequel, prequel, whatever. And I'm, nobody so cares. Nobody give cares. it a rest. Like, give nobody it a cares. Rest. And, and you know what? Uh, 300. See, that's that's why I say like Martha Washington to me at least, was the dividing line. Because the last issue of the trilogy came out early 1998, right? 300 started in 1998. And 300, I think, was really sort of the the beginning of the end for him. Because after that, he started doing uh, Helen Beck, which was just pure garbage. You know, and the same year was also um, Booze and Broads and Bullets, I think it's called. The short story it's collection, the, right? Yeah, the short story collection, which was just, she's a whore! 80 <sighs> times. So, now, and, then, and after now, that... Now, I, was... I will say this. I think it's going to be terrible, like terribly written. The art's going to look nice, you know? John Romino Jr. can draw. Mm. Uh, I do understand why DC is doing it, because Miller is still a big name. They sold tons of The Dark Knight 3 with him writing, like, you know, the short insert comics. Everything else was basically Azzarello, and just by saying, well, you know, it's Batman, and Frank Miller looked at the script, they sold Mm. tons of copies, including from the, you know, those stupid hardcover versions of the single issue, which cost like $10 a piece, something Mm -hmm. ridiculous like that. So, unlike something such as the Doomsday Clock, which I think is just both going to be a terrible comics and is morally reprehensible... If he wants to write the terrible comics and DC wants to sell the terrible comics and the market will probably want to buy the terrible comics, you know, let them have their terribleness. I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm probably not going to bother reading it even. But in terms of DC publishing crappy stuff, that's doesn't even ring the bell, let alone enter the ring. I mean, it's sort of the same thing that the same conclusion that we came to with Chaikin, right? Like at some point, there's a certain level of creator where you look at them and you just think, well, what are you going to do, right? They're never going to reach any kind of creative peak again. They're only real interest. And I guarantee you, Tom, I promise you that there's going to be something in Superman year one that is there purely to shock people because we know that Frank Miller doesn't even like Superman. So there's going to be a whole thing there about him. I don't know. There, there may be urine jokes. Somebody's going to get laid. Somebody's going to get called a whore. I don't know. Maybe it'll be Lois. Maybe it'll be Lana. Somebody's going to be an enormous slut. Uh, it's just going to be like this, this very, very rote application. And I think at some point, like you, you, you even lose the outrage at that point because it's like it's Frank Miller. If you pay for a Frank Miller book, then by God, you will get a Frank Miller book. The big initiative that DC has uh, decided upon, well, during SDCC, is that they're going to launch... The plan! The plan, Tom! Tell them about the plan to save comics! 
a series of standalone continuity-free graphic novels. Uh, they, was DC Earth One canceled? I'm not, no, I'm not joking because when uh, Wonder Woman Earth One was last year, right? Well, see, this is the thing, Tom. When a thing dies, it reincarnates and comes back in it. No, no, but wait, I'm, just, I'm just saying, go go back because those things have been successful. Like Superman Earth One, both volumes of it sold gangbusters. Same thing with Batman. Wonder Woman Earth One yeah. sold pretty as well as a Wonder Woman graphic novel can sell. Uh, Teen Titans, I don't think, led the charts of flame, but even that did okay, so... It did. So I, the why, reason I like, find this... Why a new initiative? You have this thing. It it works. It well, works. that's the funny thing, isn't it? Like, it's it's not just a new initiative. Didio and Lee at this panel presented the concept of what they call, quote-unquote, evergreen prestige stories as... And I'm using capital letters here, Tom. They called it the plan to save comics. That's their plan. To do prestige graphic novels. That's going to save comics, Tom. Well, when they say save comics, they mean save DC sales. And, you know, DC have always been pretty good with doing, like, standalone projects that are evergreen. Because Marvel's big problem in terms of long-term sales of their graphic novel collections throughout the years was, as uh, Aviv Tsipin, who was a guest on the show, said, and a friend of both of us, they do pretty well in long runs. Like, you go for, you go to Marvel to have a big, strong, long, long run on a character. But the problem is, it's hard to sell to a new reader the, this is volume one of 16. But when it comes to DC, you know, you want, you, you want a standalone Batman graphic novel, here's a long Halloween, that's a standalone. Here's year one, that's a standalone. Here's Dark Knight Returns, that's a standalone. Here's the Black Mirror, that's a standalone. And, and the Air One graphic novels were, I didn't, I didn't like what I've read of them. You know, I enjoyed Wonder Woman fine, but the Batman Superman ones, I didn't like them. But they sold well, and the reader's response was pretty positive. So you already have this initiative. It would be like Marvel two years into the Ultimate Universe announcing, ah, we're doing a new continuity-free universe, the Ultimate Universe, the uh, Earth Marvel Prime. Well, part of the problem also, I think, is that DC, for all their talk, and they really are mostly just talk these days, um, they they can never quite evade their own feelings of like insecurity when it comes to new directions, right? They have had a dozen plans to save comics so far. This whole idea of evergreen prestige stories was the lead in that that was the marketing line they used for the new fifty two. That no, that, that was were, the marketing line for the original All Star line. That they were, no, no, no. But for New 52 specifically, they said, we're going to tell new timeless stories, right? That anybody can pick up at any given time. Yeah, and that turned out to be. It wasn't graphic novels. That was on No, no, no. That's something different. No. I, I'm, what I'm saying is, when they say, like, that that is a direction that they want to go in, that they are looking at the idea of the quote unquote evergreen, right? Of the, the story that can stay on the shelves. And every time they try that, they tend to get sucked back into the idea of continuity and complex retcons and all of these unnecessary changes. You know, for all the popularity of the Earth One books, the reason that they did not spawn franchises is because they had some elements there that were not necessary, right? That, that were just the fiat of that given writer. 
And then it becomes this whole thing of, okay, so now because you have those elements, you're defined by that writer. Oops, that writer left. What do you do for the next book? Right? It, it creates a sort of, I, I do think that there is value in having a line or an imprint or something that deals specifically with iconic, um, stories that do not have to take the rest of the universe into account. If Again, you could there take... is one. DC Earth One. But it's Earth there. One, no, but Earth One was defined. See, this is the problem. Like, Earth One is not evergreen. It was popular, yes, I'm not denying that. But let's not forget the reason it's called Earth One is because it is explicitly an Elseworlds time. It presents itself as an alternative origin story for we know not what. So well, when you, you say you can't do a not a freestanding in the middle of the continuity, right? That's the problem. You can't if you if continuity is your concern, right? But if you're doing if you want to do like prestige format and have these stories that do not have to be beholden to continuity or retcons or events or anything like that, it would behoove you also not to label them explicitly as alternate reality stories because that does create difficulties, right? You end up, that's how the ultimate universe ended up being this tangled mess, right? That's how we got ultimatum because I the universe I, got the so ridiculous. Universe, I think overall it was a success for a good five years, which is a long time sure. in publishing. But if do you Marvel remember Jeffrey what those five years were like? Rope, you know, to cut the line. No, but do you remember what defined those first five years? It was Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate X-Men, even though they weren't always like keeping up, and that was more or less it. No, there were Ultimate. miniseries. Ultimates barely came out though, Tom. Like it, that wasn't part of any, but like Ultimates wasn't part of anybody else's agenda. I, I don't Ult- think that there's a problem with DC announcing we're gonna launch prestige uh, graphic novels. We're gonna sell them well, and then few years later saying, well, this initiative has run its course and we're done with it and we're going to launch a new version of the same thing. There is nothing wrong with it. There is absolutely nothing wrong with it. Financially, that's a good idea. But, you know, let it run its course. As far as I know, there's a new Earth One uh, graphic novel, the sequel to Wonder Woman, you know, on its way. They've talked Mm -hmm. about it. So you're launching this initiative in the middle of another initiative that's not very old and as far as i know is still a good seller like yes what, the- you, you can still i again i don't like those batman earth one who was it jeff jones jeff jones but yep. they sell well it, when i ever whenever i come work in the local store and somebody tells me you know some kid comes in i want to read a batman story well i can give him Year one, with uh, which as much as I like it, has prostitute Catwoman. Uh-huh. I can give him Earth One, which its only problem it's not very good. But kids don't care about that stuff. Again, my first X Men comic was Onslaught, so, and uh, and I'm still reading them. So obviously, kids have no sense of taste whatsoever. So what I'm saying <laughs> is, I don't have a problem with this initiative. I'm just saying it's it it the announcement is just weird because it doesn't seem to be related to anything they're actually doing. At this point. It's well, you know, th- this is what happens when you accept a plan to save comics from the masterminds that doomed it in the first place. Um, I don't know that I would look to Lee and Didio as sources of salvation for the medium, but hey, that's not my problem. Would you look to Mark Doyle? Um, Mark Doyle, Mark formerly Doyle. of the Batman line, 
Tell is it. now the top editor of Vertigo and Young Animal. And that came with the presentation and the announcement there's going to be Doom Patrol versus the JLA one-shot. Drawn by Frank Whiteley, which already is a top seller. And new art pieces signifying maybe new Sandman. And maybe, maybe new Invisibles? I'm going to quote the late lamented... Uh, Leonard Nimoy on this. If I were human, I believe my response would be go to hell. Um, if Why? Human, because, okay, first of all, Young Animal DCU crossover. Uh, thank God that this, Tom, is an audio medium so you cannot see the enormous middle finger I am t- currently pointing at the screen because, you know, Young Animal, first of all, like, Okay, you see, this This just goes to, like, this larger trend of DC not understanding where their missteps are. Look at what happened when they merged Vertigo and the DCU, right? Constantine made the jump from Hellblazer to Constantine, and now he's Hellblazer again, but he's in the DCU, and it completely diluted the character to the point where sales of Hellblazer are noticeably below what he was doing for Vertigo. The same is true for Deadman. The same is true for Swamp. No, no, no. Single-issue sales are still higher. Not not as a challenge because the Vertigo sales have always been below 10,000. I don't know how it does in terms of collections because, again, the, the Hellblazer collections are evergreen. I don't think I've seen anybody's buying the no. collection of Constantine since the relaunch, but, right. you know... Maybe and I, I say that know. as someone who, and I say that as someone who likes James Tinian. I don't have, I, I do enjoy him as a writer, but Constantine lost something in that transition to the more PG rated, interacting with Superman sort of setting. The same is true for Swamp Thing. The same is true for Deadman. The same is true for a lot of characters who made that jump. But they all now, started in the DC universe, you know. Uh, Swamp Thing, by Alan Moore, you know, had guest appearances. Yes. By Superman and Batman and the Spectre and Justice League. It, but it, by it that just point, slowly trailed away. That Well, that's the thing. At the point where these characters launched into Vertigo, you could make the argument that, yes, they may have started from the DCU, but once they shifted into Vertigo where they did achieve the things that made them iconic in the first place and that made Vertigo an imprint as opposed to just like this experiment that failed after a year... Once that was crystallized, to draw them back into the DCU did lose something. It, it's like that issue. Who wrote that? Was it Paul Cornell who writes an issue of uh, Superman where Lex Luthor has a conversation with Neil Gaiman's death? Paul Cornell, and they, yes. Yeah, okay. So, you know, for what? Why? Well, pointless, right? That, Just, was a good, that was a good issue. Ugh. I liked and it. Then, and then the whole, so now the, they're doing this thing again with like these crossovers between Young Animal and DCU, which if I were still reading Young Animal, I have to imagine that what appealed to me was the fact that it was not DCU. So these crossovers are just like, you cannot get away from it. They're turning, you know, oh, it is so frustrating to me, Tom, I tell you, that for, for a certain period of time after Rebirth, it seemed as if 
DC were succeeding where Marvel was failing because they were not falling for the same traps, while Marvel was sinking under $5 books and crossover event after crossover event and all of that and premature cancellations and all of that. DC has yet to cancel the single Rebirth title. They've been keeping them largely consistent throughout, right? They have been doing well. And here we are with this crossover that takes these titles that distinguish themselves by being weird and out there and essentially everything that the DCU is not and saying, let's crossover. What bullshit? What uh, a waste. I, a I, waste. I, I disagree because those books have been from the get go. You know, on the periphery, but they were part of the DC universe. You know, issue one of Cave Carson, you know, there's Superman, you know, saying hello and disappearing. You know, Doom Patrol has always been part of the DC universe. Uh, but what not was that Mother Panic though. that took place in Gotham, you know, standing behind Batman back saying hello, or whatever it is she does. If they want to do a one-shot crossover thing, fine. I don't think it's... I don't think it's them getting the Constantine treatment. I really don't. I think it's just a one-off thing, but those books are still going to be Jared Way's little babies. Then why the crossover? Why not? Uh, because it, like, if there's no benefit to it, then why? Do it? Well, because there is a sto- There is probably a story idea that Jared Way writes this, by the way, or was it one of his co-writers? I don't remember even. I think it's Way. So... Jared Way has, a, has an idea, and if you can have Frank Whiteley drawing your story, you will have Frank Whiteley drawing your story. The thing I'm, I'm more it, not intrigued as much as confused about is the idea of uh, new Vertigo uh, stories, because mm. Sandman continuation, if Neil Gaiman wants to write more, the market will definitely bear it. You know, as we've said, Overture came out. If there's a new Sandman story, we, that was a Jay Lee's on art, not Jim Jay Lee. You know, mm-hmm. he's a good he's a he's a good artist for a Sandman type story. And yeah. if Neil Gaiman wants to do more, we will say thank you and we'll take it. Invisibles, that was such a '90s project. Invisibles was. was super of its time and day, and therefore, when you read it today, the age shows so. I have no idea why why would you do more invisibles? Because it was also a story that, you know, self-contained. The end was the end of the world as we know it. Yeah. Maybe it's a prequel dealing with previous teams of invisibles throughout history. They set it up as an option. That's a story you can I tell. I don't know, but, but I also have but I also have a great deal of difficulty believing that uh, what would you do? Would you give the invisibles to another writer? <laughs> No, like, <laughs> I, no, no, no. The, the self-creation, I think, still holds. So if it is a new Invisibles, it's by Morrison. Morrison has he has a good deal with DC. He so does, there is, but, there is, but so he's not it, doing anything for them now. Yes, he does. Uh, a new Batman thing. Huh. The, right, they've announced Arkham Asylum 2 with uh, Chris Burnham. Oh, right. That, that thing which the is thing. the thing with future Damon, which is obviously not Arkham Asylum. The worst thing Ben yeah. Morrison ever wrote. It's basically, hey, I want to do a new project with Chris Burnham, and DC is saying, well, okay, but we'll call it in the name of that super-selling graphic novel. Does it have any relation to it? Nope. We'll still call it that. Whatever. Yeah. Can so, you put, like, Arkham Asylum on the cover, at least? <laughs> yeah. Can, can at <laughs> one point saying, can Batman say at one point, it's like I'm in Arkham Asylum, 
Again. <laughs> They've built a new Arkham Asylum and they call it Arkham Asylum 2. Yes. The Arkham Asylum Asylumer. <laughs> uh, no Dave McKean on art, Chris Bernard. For me, that's an improvement all the way for me. Uh, so if if Grant Morrison wanted to do more Invisibles, no, my thinking my thinking to it is the same thing I said about Miller and Superman. I think it's going to be a bad story, but you know, fine, whatever, do it. Yeah. It's I'm not sure what's my opinion about them still doing Vertigo because. On the one hand, you know, all that history and all the great works that came out, some of them quite recently, like The Sheriff of Babylon. On the other hand, as we've discussed, you know, comic companies are really bad at letting good ideas go. And saying at the right time, well, this was it, and now it's time to close shop, because what I wouldn't want Vertigo to be is the ultimate universe, right? If at a certain point they ran on mm. stories they can tell, and all of those creators who who used to tell Vertigo stories do it via Boom or Image or Dark Horse, whatever, you know, stop! Don't don't give me another Lucifer revival. Just say, well, we had all those amazing stories for twenty five years and more, and now we're saying goodbye. The library is still there; you can still buy all the classics, but we yeah. won't just publish stuff because we need to justify the office space. And the, the the thing that really amazes me, though, is that I get such mixed messages from DC when it comes to how they even perceive a Vertigo. Because uh, to lead us into our final subject, look at my cool segue, um, in terms of solicitations, right? So the October solicitations came out. And much like previous months, what they've done is the two or three Vertigo titles that are still coming out in October were shoved down to the very bottom of the solicitations, Tom, after the D- the DCU trade paperbacks, which is very uncommon, right? It basically means that in order, if you wanted to see a Vertigo solicitation for any of the books, you have to go past the trades to like this tiny, tiny section between the trades and the dolls. So I, that, that, that is a deprioritization, right? That is them trying to sweep something under the rug. And yet at the same time, here's Mark Doyle saying, you know, new Vertigo project. I'm like, do you think that Vertigo is, do they think Vertigo is important or not? Because I, it feels like they're in this weird middle space. Maybe because they don't know if they can rely on way to keep Young Animal going long enough for Young Animal to really establish itself as an imprint. Or maybe, I don't know. But it's like they're holding onto Vertigo as a backup, and they occasionally throw these things, but then they don't care about Vertigo. They really don't. Well, it'll take time, I guess. You know, he just became the new head manager, editor, whatever, so not right away. Yeah, but well, I'm assuming that he's not the one who's doing the, the who's giving the orders about the solicitation texts. I mean, wherever I, this I th- is coming I think from. it's a case where we'll have to wait to early 2018 to see what this uh, shift has brought up. It'll well, probably take time for a new series to be announced, and it's possible all of this is just like they're doing a prestige art book, like 25 years of Vertigo, and the art is just yeah. all the new art we've seen is just some you know pinups and stuff. That I would find much more believable. Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll do solicits super quick, and that will be <laughs> yeah. the end of this episode because 
It's back to the good, either the good old days or the bad old days of the three-hour episode of the Smorgasbord. Well, to be fair, this was an anomaly in that the Eisners and SDCC and all this stuff happened. But so, I, I think the flip side of that, Tom, is fortunately for both of us, there's not a lot here. Yeah, uh, Marvel, the only thing I technically care about is Punisher the Platoon. First two issues out of a six-issue mini by... Garth Ennis and Goran Pavlov, and it's another dive for Ennis to uh, the origins of Punisher in Vietnam. He already did a very well-received miniseries, Born, and uh, One Shot, and he and Pavlov worked together on the Fury miniseries, Fury, My War Gone By, which is another very good, like, historical war stories and Parlov is a very good artist for this type of thing, and it's a war story by Anis, so you already know if you like it or hate it at this point, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, for those of you who want to see Frank Castle kill someone... That's, <laughs> that's the novelty! Frank yeah. Castle kills somebody, and in the I next mean, issue he might kill someone else. Well, you know, because the, the solicitation text is like, come see the Punisher's very first kill. I'm like, that's kind of like what you would put on a porno video. I don't understand why. I why is that appealing? I think uh, talking overall about what Ennis did with the Punisher, what he did really well when you look at the whole thing that he did with Punisher Max and Bourne and the one-shots is making the character into something that's more than just a cool guy shoots shoots villains. He -hmm. made it into a story about Vietnam, about the war as the wound in the American heart. And the final story arc was basically parts, parts, uh, just an ongoing story about uh, the army trying to capture Castle to like clean up its embarrassment and part direct commentary on what the Vietnam War meant for America. Yeah. Filtered through Ennis's usual sensibilities, of course. No, there was very little, uh, you know, bad jokes. I think none at all. Anyway, the only other item I say of interest, I'm lying, uh, from Marvel, is that they are going ahead with this legacy nonsense where they bring uh. back, and I quote, dozens of its most beloved heroes, villains, teams, and artifacts. If you thought something is going to change, well, you were wrong, wrong, wrong. It's the exact same creators and the exact same titles. Nothing new here. Nothing to see. Move along. Another uh, renumbering and supposed, and I quote, clean jumping on point. And a lot of premises, Tom, that include the word again or one more time. Good luck with that, morons. DC, uh, the only thing I care about is Challengers of the Unknown by Jack Kirby and that's a reprint of the first eight issues of Challengers of the Unknown and their short stories from showcase number 6, 7, 11 and 12, 320 mm-hmm. pages, 30 bucks of Kirby Classics uh, if you like it, you like it, if you yes. don't you're wrong a uh, couple of points of interest for me from DC, uh, Batman White Knight number one, this is written and drawn by Sean Murphy from The Wake it's a seven-issue miniseries in which Batman is evil and the Joker has been cured, which I, I'm i sure that I've seen that in some Elseworlds or other, yeah, but I guess it's worth a look. There was a story arc uh, in Legends of the Dark Knight called uh, Going Sane, where Batman is thought right, to be Joker. dead. Right, Joker, yeah. Yeah, where Batman is thought to be dead and the Joker just gets cured and then Batman turns out alive again and it ruins No, him. but I'm... 
I'm thinking specifically of the flip, where the Joker is good and Batman is evil, because that's the premise of this book. Um, worth a look, I guess. You know, Elseworlds are always potentially yeah. intriguing, and Sean it, Murphy... It was in the Batman, uh, the Brave and the Bold TV series, when they did uh, alternate universe story, where Batman is Owlman and the Joker is the brave ra- Red Hood fighting to save the world. Right, that, that could have been it. Uh, another item is Gotham City Garage number one and two by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, art by Lin Yoshi. This, I think it's a take on sort of what they did with Bombshells, right? Where So Bombshells reimagines the uh, DC women as World War II period, and this is reimagining them as biker girls. Now, I could never get a straight answer, Tom, from people with direct experience as to whether Bombshells was actually a good story. I know that a lot of it was based on like this artwork and these, these action figures and these designs and you know, that the book was primarily used as a platform to present these designs and the story was just sort of like incidentally layered on top of it. But was it actually any good? It's still ongoing and people really like it. I okay. never, I never connected. It's Bennett, right? It's Margaret Bennett. Yeah. I've never really connected to her writing stuff. It's one of those... I I see why other people like it, but for me, it's always been a bit too straightforward, too much presenting itself and telling you the subtext with the text at the same time. Yeah, exactly. You um, uh, you, you like some of her stuff, right? Uh, in, insects, too... was it? Or Animosity? Um... Animosity I'm enjoying. Uh, mm. She she does have some clever concepts, not perfect execution. She was not great on Angela. I don't know. I guess I'll take a look at it. We'll see. And one last bit. And this this part is really like for humor's sake. And I hope that it is funny. Uh, Harley and Ivy meet Betty and Veronica. This, this <laughs> is... laughing. This is a six-issue mini by Paul Dini and Mark Andreco, art by Laura Braga, in which Harley and Ivy kidnap Archie Wait, and Paul, Betty Paul, and Veronica. T- Paul, Paul Dini. Dini? Yeah. Uh, it's... I know, Ooh, I know. Paul Dini and female characters can sometimes be a bit... I know. Mm, uh, mm, uh, you're an old man. Please stop doing those things. I'm embarrassed. I'm hoping that Mark Andreco might balance some of that out. Uh, it, it looks like it has the potential to be funny. And when a crossover like this, like Archie versus the Punisher, I'm, I'm open to it. Let's give it a shot. Uh, image? Uniquely, uh, for image, I really only have one item of interest because everything else is just sort of ongoing. Uh, Maestro's number one by Steve Scors. Don't know. Scors? Is it Scors? Scors or Scorsese? Whatever. I don't think it's Scorsese. Uh, Steve Scores on story and art. He's the guy who did We Stand on Guard, Doc Frankenstein, Ellen Moore's Young. He's a gr- he's a great artist. The only thing he's ever written, I think, he had a short run on Wolverine after Eric Larson left, I believe, and it was just generic. Wolverine goes to Japan fight fight Yakuza, so it wasn't deep, but it was fun, like fun as long. Stuff. As long as he wasn't the one who wrote that story where Wolverine exposes that the Punisher reads gay porn, I think no, it's no, be that fun. that's Frank Thierry. Okay, so you know he's it already wasn't even like gay porn. It was the stupid thing where Ennis did his uh, comedy one shot where the Punisher yeah. shoots Wolverine in the balls and tells him, "Oh, it'll heal." And then Frank Thierry's 
version of a comeback was they fight and then uh, Wolverine sees that the Punisher has all those uh, bodybuilding magazines because he works out. He's like, what are you, gay, Frank? That's his idea of a comeback. Uh-huh. Frank so, uh, Thierry should be <laughs> thinking about talking to Garth Ennis at his best day, never, yeah. write, never mind writing a comeback comics. And as, saying that as someone who does not think Ennis is all that, like, Thierry was out of his league. Yeah. So, yeah, as long as he's not the writer who did that, I feel like Steve Scorch has, what, like, what's, a, what's a leg up. of, of Masters, by the way? It does read, like, something similar to Curse Words. You've got sort of this... A uh, royal wizard who rules the land and his family has been killed off. And then there's the last son who uh, has been exiled and he's going to come back and take, you know, it, it does read a little generic. But like I said, Image image has a problem with its previews in terms of distinguishing books. Like I, from the solicitation text of Curse Words, I would not have assumed that that book was as good as it was. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it, it, it does sort of necessitate that you keep an open mind and not pay too much attention to previous texts that may sound generic because the gem is usually in the thing and not how they summarize it. That's just how it is with them. Okay. Uh, Donny Cates has a one shot with Ian Birdman called mm-hmm. A Tomahawk Zero, though there won't be number one or two because it's a one shot. Collecting a series of short strips they did for Heavy Metal Magazine. Behold, Puny Earthing, a deluxe oversized collection of the story originally serialized in Heavy Metal Magazine. The complete adventures of the Cyber Berserker and his mighty Atomahawk. Join them on their quest to free imprisoned God and find out why Grant Morrison calls it a screaming black hole feedback squall of death metal Kirby cosmic energy spinning straight towards your prefrontal cortex. Wow. <laughs> so it's going to be an intelligent little comic about, you know, two people having dinner, sipping tea and talking about life and death. Or not. Uh, could be worse. I've heard worse premises. Yeah, yeah. Anything Dark else Horse. No, no, let's jump to Dark Horse. I think you will want to talk about this one. I got nothing from Dark Horse. Really? You don't want to talk about Sherlock Frankenstein and the Legion of Evil by Jeff Lemire and David Rubin? No. Seems kind of excessive, but shoot, go for it. No, that's the, that's the spin-off from uh, Black... Uh, what was it? Black Hammer? Yeah. Which I have not read yet. I've read issue one. I said, oh, it's good. I'll read the collection. The collection came out and I didn't pick it up yet. You know, there's so much stuff coming out. So uh... this is a prequel. So this is a prequel and it's about co- a guy called Sherlock Frankenstein. Guess what he's about? And he fights something called the Legion of Evil. I think they are evil. Yeah, I don't know what's going on in comics lately where like there are so many damn takes on Frankenstein coming out at the same time, but I'll pass. He's always been popular. Uh, David Rubin, if you haven't seen any of his stuff, he's a phenomenal European artist. He just did a, a series with uh, Matt Kent called Ether. And if nothing else, he's he's you know he has beautiful designs and he has like this super clean line and great characters and expressions and movements. Like, Mm -hmm. top-of-the-line guy. So, it's worth a look just for him. Okay. Uh, Nothing else from Dark Horse for you. Nothing else from Dark Horse for me. Smaller publishers? 
Uh, boom, two points of interest. First of all, Eugenic, which is a three-part miniseries by James Tinian and Eric Donovan. It's the last of their thematic trilogy. Uh, I loved Mimetic. I was kind of lukewarm on Cognetic, but the uh, idea was interesting. I didn't like any of them. They felt to me like short stories expanded needlessly. Like any of them could have been told in 20 pages and that's it. Mm, I think that Tinian's uh, writing style tends to attribute more depth to the characters. than you could get in 20 pages. But anyway, uh, so this is the last one. I'm looking forward to it. Also by James Tinian, it's the last issue of The Woods. Uh, I will miss that series. I've been enjoying it consistently. And um, that's it from Boom. What have you got? Uh, IDW have finally launched their Black Crown uh, imprint. Yes. Two, two series to start that one out. The first is Kid Lobotomy by Peter Milligan and Tess Fowler. Kafka meets King Lear, by the way, of young Frankenstein, because, as you said, we can't do without a Frankenstein. And there's this uh, dark family, and they have this uh, lots of rivalries and betrayals and some stuff. So um, Peter Milligan, I'm mostly cold on his stuff recently. The one thing of him that I've enjoyed in the last... Four years, I think, is the short serial he did for 2000 AD. Uh, what was it? Counterfeit Girl? I think it was Bad Company. After no, Brett Ewan's died. No, he, he did have a, a, a Bad Company sequel, but I haven't read it. But he did have something called Counterfeit Girl for 2000 AD, which was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, most of his recent self-owned stuff was kind of... Uh, it's kind of embarrassing like what, he what, had what that one it? with the the, the the discipline you remember the discipline the oh terrible, yes <laughs> like there is no porn for women on the internet she has to go to a museum and look at an age-old uh, picture too did that ever that got cancelled right no 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 it was a six issue story it was a six issue mini okay yeah uh, yes I remember that well Tess Fowler is drawing it so we know she won't take This kind of crap. Like, if he gives her a death script, she would be like, nope, nope, nope. Send it back. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, so... It might not but, be good, but it won't be embarrassing. Well, what I'm wondering if... You know, this is Karen Berger's imprint, right? Yeah. I'm wondering if maybe she can get something better out of him. Maybe part of the problem is that he hasn't really been working with, you know, editors on her level. We would be like, Peter, this does not make any sense. Go back and do it again. No, it makes sense. It's just not good. Yeah, you know, like, it's, it's, the fact that they put him first, like, it, it suggests to me that there may be something here worth looking into. I don't know. He's very hit and miss. I agree with you on that. Um, uh, we'll have to wait and see. There's a quarterly. They also have a quarterly yeah. anthology called... Black One Quarterly, Fall 2017, first issue, collection of short stories. We have, again, Peter Milligan. We also have uh, Rob Davis, David Brent, Tini Howard, Martin Simmons, Philip Bond. Yeah. It's a decent uh, collection of talent. Whatever they will do, I have no idea. Well, it's, uh, like, again, the whole project, right, the whole Black Crown imprint is sort of a, a mystery at this point. We're diving into something relatively new. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of it because I think it does have the potential to maybe be the new Vertigo regardless of what Mark Doyle thinks he's doing. Um, 
And I think, in fact, I, I didn't find this in the solicitations, but uh, Shelly Bond's imprint is supposed to start soon as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, we're entering into a potentially interesting... Uh, do we really, again, do we really need a new Vertigo in the age of Image and Dark Horse? I don't, but I don't think that Black Crown is going to be Vertigo in that way. I think, or or af- even Aftershock is pretty much doing stuff that you know Vertigo could have done years ago. I guess, like if you're a creator, right? Like assuming that you're a writer and that people want to publish your stuff, and they're saying like, okay, you want to do creator owned, you could go to Image, you could go to Boom, you could go to Black Crown. Presumably, there are reasons, or you could go to Vertigo, right? I'm assuming that there are reasons people choose one or the other, whether it's working relationships with the editors or different uh, page rates. I don't know. There's got to be some kind of different impetus for different decisions that he's made. Otherwise, everyone would just go to Image, right? If there were one standard for creator-owned work and Image did it, it's like, well, then why would you go to Boom? Well, no, we've talked about it before. The problem with Image, as far as creators are concerned, there is no... Payment yeah. up front, like you take the risk, and if you if the series succeed, you get pretty much all of the money. But if it fails, well, you know you you had to pay for the artist, you had to pay for a lot of the promotion, and you lose money. Right. So and, again, stopping I and IDW, you know, you might not you'll you only get I don't know fifty percent of the earnings, but if it loses money, IDW loses money. You're you're still fine. Yeah, uh, so, I I, I will say about the Black Crown Quarterly thing, it's forty eight pages, it's seven dollars, and that's too much. Yes, it is. IDW has always been a very expensive company, always looking for an excuse to do like those gem one shots that cost eight dollars and came with like square bounding and no, like uh, it's I'm sorry, like it seems like there's a lot of interesting talent there, but that's too much for a one shot. It is not a one shot. It's too much for a collection of short stories. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is... $5. Sure, whatever. $6, upper limit, because they, you know, they, they ha- you can have a poster with it. The, there's a pull-out poster. And, that's and it's nice. quarterly. And also, like, the fact that it's quarterly would maybe compel you to be like, five ninety nine. dollars eh, you don't spend it every month. Yeah, but $7 for 48 pages, it's too much. Like, it's way too no. much. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like selling the back material from Island on a separate book. It's like no, there is value in that, and people do want to see what's going on behind the scenes, and they do want to know what's coming up. But nobody's going to pay top dollar for that. When... They didn't. They didn't pay for Island, and that was eight dollars for a hundred pages. Yeah, as far as I know, nobody's out there buying like Image Plus and all that. So. Mm. Nah, it's not uh, uh, not wise, but we'll final, see. We'll see final what happens. piece of uh, trivia for me: uh, Atomic Robo and the Spectre of Tomorrow Number One. That's a new Atomic Robo miniseries, as usual, by Brian Clevenger and Scott Wagner. And again, the thing I like about Atomic Robo is that every time they do a miniseries, it's a standalone, and every single one of them is something I could tell a new reader: "Oh, you can start from here. It doesn't yeah. matter." So this one seems to be another flashback story, taking Robo back to his uh, 1930s adventures, if I'm guessing right, which they did in, uh, I think it was the fourth trade. The the structure of Atomic Robo, because you have this robot that was built at the beginning of the 20th century and will not die, like he's immortal unless you blow him up. 
Yeah. And he has this history stretching all the way through the 21st century. Every single story can jump backwards and forwards in time. So you have one story and he's fighting monsters in modern day. And you have another story and it's World War II flashback and he's fighting robo-Nazis. And you have another flashback in the 50s and he's fighting Cthulhu. And then you have another story taking place in the days of the Prohibition and fighting gangsters. And Destructors allows you and you can change and you can change the supporting characters every single arc. But nothing feels lost and you still get this idea of what the character is. And in that way it's very much like Hellboy only it's not a 20 year old 20 year old universe that at this point feels a bit heavy. Like where do you start with Hellboy? This and this and this and this and this and this and this. Yeah, but also is still very much its own thing. Well, the other benefit is, to the best of my knowledge, like the thing with Hellboy, part of the problem when it comes to like breaking down for new readers is you have to contend with the spin-offs. Yeah, right. Whereas with Atomic Robo, it really is like a series of mini series, and then you just just follow the trail. You know. Yeah, yeah. and I I really like Atomic Robo, and if you haven't read it yet, that's as good as jumping on point as any other Atomic Robo series, and you should really read them. They're super fun. Yeah, I hate to end on a downer note, but um, one last item of interest from the solicitations comes from Archie Comics. Not only is Jughead MIA, but there's no sign of Wade's Archie either. Uh, it has disappeared from the solicitation, so I'm guessing that's, that that's done. That's weird. They just announced, I think, a new like they Archie event, like over the edge or something like this. That, that is, it's not an event per se, it's a storyline. Yeah, like, uh, they, they, they do pretty good work of pushing up, oh, there's a new storyline status quo change without yeah. making it into a damn crossover. So maybe it's just a jump month, a skip month, maybe? It could be, but they launched another title. What, the Which Riverdale one? You're thinking no, they're uh, gonna... No, Archie's, Archie's. Archies. It's something about, like, you know, the Archies as a band, which I don't care about, and it's not... Who's, who's writing that one? Ooh, um, I, hang on. It's not also Wade, right? No, it's Wade is, see, if Wade had been involved, I would have just said it's probably a spinoff or like, or it's a transition. But after this over the edge storyline, which, uh, I'm probably not spoiling to say that it's not as terrible as you think it is. Uh, like nothing horrible and unthinkable happens. But what ended up happening is like that title is gone. Jughead has been gone since like issue 16. It's just been completely absent. This Archie's book is written by Alex Segura and Matt Rosenberg. Alex Segura is very good. I just don't know if I care about this. Hmm. Like it's a different mentality for these characters and I was enjoying where they were before. I don't know if I want to go into like a new thing um maybe it's just i don't know also jughead the hunger is an ongoing now so. <laughs> yeah script by I, frank I, script by frank thierry uh i'm suddenly not hungry anymore <laughs> i i think i think we'll finish the podcast with this you know yes crotchety old man sean and uh, slightly less crotchety old man well I, I will like I guess if this is like the opportunity to say it was a really great run for as long as it lasted, uh, I never thought that I would be reading, you know, Archie Comics month to month and being like, wow, that was fantastic. But I did. And it's done. And I'm sad, but there will be new comics next month. Okay, so this is it for our post SDCC <laughs> special. Woo! Again, we did you... it! We did it, Tom! We did it all! All of the news! 
Yes! Uh, all of the news everywhere. You no longer need to listen to any other comic podcast about news. Yes. Can't we were the all. true news, Tom. We were the true news. Yeah. So, uh, if you like this show, please support Secret on Patreon. If you want to talk to us, you can find me on the Twitter at Tom Shops. If you enjoy Sean's voice, he also has another podcast he does, right, Sean? Yes, I do a video game review podcast with my co-host Boris called Games of Future Past, in which we compare new games and old games and try to look at the trends that evolved out of them. So, seek them out. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time. Bon appétit. Bon appétit.